Hey everybody, this is the Pop Punk Project. I'm your host, Keenan, and we are on episode 15, the season finale. That's right, folks, season one finale. Hey everybody, I'm Mike. So what does that mean, Keenan? Are we done for good? Are we hanging them up? We're not hanging up, Mike. We're taking a couple weeks off, regrouping a little bit. We have some interesting things in the works, and we will be back in a few weeks for season two. A little R&R. That's right. I know you're overworked at the moment, Mike, so need you to, to rest up and get that beauty sleep. Overworked and underpaid. That's right. <laughs> uh, as per usual. So they say when you're born, you're crying and the people around you are... <laughs> Where are you going with this? What's that saying? I have no idea. Um, they say when you're born, you come into the world crying and the people around you are smiling and happy. Live your life so that when you die you're happy and the people around you are crying whoa similarly keenan we started off this season with blink we're going to end this season with blink we're going to be talking about their 2003 self-titled lp tonight and we started off the season crying and now our listeners are crying so. <laughs> <laughs> nobody's smiling it is a nice bookend to season one mike this episode is also extremely special mike this episode we will be joined by lead guitarist of the phenomenal pop-punk band Knuckle Puck, Kev Maida. That is huge. It's pretty unbelievable, actually. Pretty incredible that he wants to join us, but we're very grateful to him and we're excited to speak to him. I can't wait. We appreciate Kevin giving us some of his time to talk some Blink. Yeah, so pumped. So let's not waste any more time, Mike. Let's stage dive in. This is Blink-182's fifth studio album, produced by Jerry Finn and released on November 18th, 2003, by Geffen Records. The lineup's the same as we previously discussed on our Enema episode. Mark Hoppus on bass and vocals, Tom DeLon on guitars and vocals, and Travis Barker on drums. Now, Mike, is this their self-titled album or their untitled album? I think it's their self-titled album. I think they've gone on record to explain that it's actually meant to be their untitled album. But I don't know. I think that overcomplicates things, but... <laughs> we'll let Mark know that you disagree with his assessment here. Following their ascent to stardom and success of their prior two releases, they were compelled to take a break and subsequently participate in various side projects. The two that are most notable are Boxcar Racer and Transplants. When they regrouped, they were inspired to approach song structure and arrangements differently on their next effort together, which you can clearly hear in this album. The recording process was pretty long and unconventional. They decided to pick up a couple different techniques as they recorded this album. They started recording in January through October, and then this was released in November, so definitely longer than we're used to seeing with pop-punk bands or most album recordings for the most part. The album was a commercial success. It sold over 2.2 million copies in the U.S., and a little fun fact, Keenan, to support the new album, the band also decided to create an entirely new logo. What? That's right. <laughs> Their smiley face with X's for each eye and arrows on the left side of the face. Oh, yeah. How fun. With that out of the way, Keenan, why don't you tell us what in the world's going on here? I'd love to, Mike. November 2nd, 2003, 
the U.S. sitcom Arrested Development premieres on Fox, starring Jason Bateman, Portia de Rossi, and Michael Sarah. Have you seen that one fully through? I have. I love Arrested Development. Yeah, it's so good. It's one of the, I think, smartest and a lot of rewatchability. Like, there are so many jokes in those episodes that you kind of notice something new each time you watch it. There's always money in the banana stand. There's always money in the banana stand. Hilarious. <laughs> that's Yeah, that's definitely the funniest line. <laughs> <laughs> that's it right there. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. Good point. With no context, that, that line is so stupid. <laughs> but it's funny if you watch it. That's part of the fun of watching it is each episode builds upon itself. So True. It's a show where if you watch a single episode, it's funny, but there's so many in-jokes that pay off throughout the seasons that it's worth watching it from the beginning. Yeah, there's so many callbacks. Yeah, you're mm -hmm. totally right. On November 5th, Keenan, after 26 years and at a distance from Earth of over 8 billion miles. Wow. That's billion with a B. I heard you, yeah. Voyager 1 exits the solar system, still transmitting to this day. I think they expected to transmit into the mid to late 2020s, so we'll see. Interesting. But it was originally launched in September of 1977. Whoa, so that's been floating out there for mm -hmm. 50 years almost? Voyager 1 and Voyager 2. They just sent them up and I guess they're transmitting signals back to Earth. And it left the solar system. You know what? This is too complicated for me. I think we need to bring Charlie Kelly back on to explain it to us. I think we do too. I think pretty much, again, I did no additional research, but in my mind that means we can no longer track it it's just sending us transmissions, and so we know it's still out there, but we're not sure. It's no longer traceable from our technologies. That's insane. Charlie, if you're listening, please uh, send us an email and explain this to us. Yeah, <laughs> tell us we're wrong. <laughs> On November 16th, Lionel Messi makes his official debut for FC Barcelona in a friendly against Porto. He's been a legend ever since then. <laughs> and you love soccer, Mike. Excuse me, football. Hogo bonito. Hogo bonito, Yeah. And we know that you have a storied soccer career, so this is probably a big deal for you, right? Yeah, a lot of people, when Messi first started in 2003... Wouldn't they compare you guys? Yeah, so I was still playing varsity 7th grade soccer. So if you looked at the top-ranked players in the world, I was in the top 10, and I kind of moved up a couple slots each year. That's right, that's right. Uh, when Messi went pro, that left me alone at the top, so... Huge. Blew out my um, ankle and just never was the same. <laughs> So this isn't a big news story for Lionel Messi or for the soccer world. It's really a huge news story for you. Yeah. Okay, got it. It takes me back to a, a dark place in my life. <laughs> got it. Messi is still killing it, and I am, uh, well, I'm here with you. So still killing it. Yeah, not bad. <laughs> I also, I made all that up. <laughs> I'm like getting sad. <laughs> <laughs> so from that fake story, you're now sad? Yeah, I'm sad about what my soccer career could have been if I worked harder. Oh, I'm sorry, buddy. In another lifetime, maybe. I hope not. The very next day, November 17th, Britney Spears, at 21 years old, becomes the youngest singer to get a star in the Hollywood Walk of Fame. She was huge back then. I mean, this was the time when Blink was huge, Britney Spears was huge, Christina Aguilera was huge, all the boy bands were huge. Yeah, I think this is right around when Britney started getting edgy. Yeah. I want to say, like, Toxic and... That's right. Slave for You, that type of song. She wasn't the good girl anymore. This was after Good Girl, but before Crazy. It was like that, right. that sweet spot right in the middle, right? Right. 
Yeah. Don't you have to buy your own star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame? I have no idea what the process is for that. I thought I read that you have to like apply. It's not bestowed upon you. Oh, really? That makes it kind of lame. Yeah, so it kind of tarnishes it a little bit. Yeah, okay, so she just shelled out the whatever price tag it was? I could be wrong. There could be some different path to a star that I'm not informed about. But Britney Spears has also been in the news recently because she's apparently being held against her will by her dad and her boyfriend. I've heard that, yeah. I think it's court-ordered. Like, she was unable to care for herself, so they've... Oh, They've told her dad and boyfriend that they're responsible for her well-being. Yeah. There's these crazy Instagram conspiracy theories where somebody comments, wear a yellow shirt in your next video if you're not okay. And then the next video, she's wearing a yellow shirt. Ah, another conspiracy theory. We know that we love the conspiracy theories. Yeah. This one, I think, has holds more water than some of the past, though. Yeah. Wasn't that also like an Amanda Bynes thing, too? Like her family or her parents were holding her against her will because she also went off the deep end. It sounds familiar. And I think in both cases, they're probably being prescribed medication that to a certain degree helps them, but they might be overprescribed or on the wrong prescription. I don't know. It's yeah. it's kind of a crazy world in Hollywood and it just gets darker and darker the further you investigate it. Yeah, no doubt. The same day, Keenan, November 17th, from Hollywood to <laughs> the governor's mansion, Oh, back to Hollywood? (laughs) Back to Hollywood. (laughs) Arnold Schwarzenegger is sworn in as governor of California. (laughs) The governator. That's right. That was massive back then. Shocking. That's just another example of this is the perfect 2003 news story. So he was in office probably for what, six years? It seemed like a very long time. I often forget about those times. Like he was the governor of California for six years. What happened? Like, was the state okay? I guess so. Then Jerry Brown won again, right? I don't know. I'm I don't brushed know. up my California politics, but... I remember that election, though. I remember there was, like... I do, too. It was hilarious. There was a bunch of candidates, like, um, some porn star was running. Mary Carey. Do you remember her? <laughs> she was on those VH1 shows all the time. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah, those terrible shows. But I think she was running against him, or... I don't know. Well, I guess it's a good thing he won then. By comparison, yeah. The best of the field, maybe. California's still there, right? Last I checked, but haven't they wanted to like secede from the U.S. and all that? I don't know. I think at some point, yeah. Just kidding. We love our Cali listeners. Love you, Cali. Cali for life, brah. And our third November 17th news story, Keenan. This one's a little bit of a callback from our Good Charlotte episode. John Allen Muhammad who was the DC sniper. Remember him? I do, from the GC episode. That's right. He was unanimously convicted of all four counts in the indictment against him, including Mm. two charges of capital murder committed during his October 2002 shootings. And he was eventually executed in 2009. Oh, wow. I would say probably deserved, right? I don't know. I think so. Can you lighten this up for me real quick before we move on? Sure, would love to, Mike. Our new favorite segment, Famous Weddings. Here we go. (laughs) I love it. This one's another callback. November 1st, Saved by the Bell actress Elizabeth Berkley, she was Jesse. That's right. Weds artist Greg Lauren in Cabo San Lucas, Mexico. Still married to this day, I believe, right? They're a success story. That's huge. We mentioned her before with the I'm So Scared. 
That's right. That scene from Saved by the Bell. Yeah. And then November 22nd, actress, well, actress is a loose term, Carmen Electra weds rocker Dave Navarro in Los Angeles, California. That's a pretty rock star wedding right there. It is. Are they still together, Mike? I looked it up and they were actually divorced in 2007. Ah, man. Our batting average is not high here. No. That's a relationship I do remember. They were on a lot of reality TV shows, too. I think they had their own. Yeah, like Dave Navarro's Rock of Love or something. No, you're thinking of that other guy. Is that Brett Michaels? Yeah, Brett Michaels. But (laughs) I think he had a very similar concept. Those all ran together in my 13-year-old brain. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. And then a quick famous birthday, Mike, November 13th, 2003. Oh. Your very host, Keenan, 13th birthday. Wow. Can you believe that? <laughs> That's great. Huge. Also, Allison, his mother's birthday. The same day, huh? Same day. Wow. That was also your golden birthday, 13 on the 13th. That's a big one, yeah. That's fantastic. Well, happy birthday to both you and your mom. Thanks, Mike. I'll let her know you said that. All those years ago. (laughs) Any sort of general themes with this album, Keenan, that you would want to discuss for no reason in particular before we get going? (laughs) Literally no reason at all, yeah. This album is a lot different from earlier Blink albums. I think that's very clear. The most clear case is that they experiment a lot more with different types of sounds, different instruments. I think a lot of these sounds were inspired by those side projects that they were doing leading up to getting back together and releasing this album. There are songs that sound like spoken word poetry almost, and there are 80s synth pop songs, and there's whispering in songs, there's interludes. It's just a whole different album than what we're used to with Blink. So I think that is the thing that stands out the most. Yeah, the themes are not as light and jokey. You're not going to hear a dysentery Gary on this album. The lyrical content is some very heavy stuff. It was a short time period between albums. You know, 2001 to 2003 isn't that long of a time. But they underwent some huge changes. They all became fathers during that time period. So that changes your worldview a little bit. Kind of forces you to mature. Yeah, and I think it's pretty clear that they have much deeper thoughts on those relationships. Stronger feelings about love and breakups and their family. Things that we just didn't see before. They had really sort of shallow thoughts and shallow things to say about girls and parties and things like that. Right. One thing, though, Mike, that is consistent between their earlier albums and this album is we do get a little taste of space in one of these songs. Tom DeLonge, True to Form. I did notice that. He had to get one in there. Had to sneak it in. Always. (laughs) Always. (laughs) The other cool thing that I noticed, Mike, is instead of Mark and Tom alternating singing on songs, this one, they're alternating within songs from chorus to verse. Like, Mark will take the first verse, Tom will sing the chorus, or Mark will sing the first verse, Tom will sing the second verse. It wasn't after doing a little bit of research that I realized they had a whole new approach to their writing process, and it's very clear when you start listening to the songs. They would pick a topic, go into separate rooms, and would just write whatever they wanted to individually about that topic or that concept. And then they would bring it together, and they would just kind of mesh it, and that would become the song. That's why you hear in a lot of these songs them talking about similar messages, but in unique and individual ways. So they wrote this album the way 
a local improv company would <laughs> practice on a Tuesday night at the VFW or something like that. Of course. Yeah, that's right. And it worked. All right, everybody go into a corner, write your thoughts on a piece of paper, and we're going to blend them all together. Yeah, that's all it was. I would argue that they created more memorable content than improv players. So I now want to welcome on a huge guest, very special guest. I want to just send a quick thank you to Jason Copeland and Vince Maida, who made this connection and made it happen. Big fans of the show. They're our Chicago contingent of the pop punk posse. Much appreciated, guys. <laughs> He's the lead guitarist of the very popular pop punk band Knuckle Puck, Kev Maida. Kev, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for joining us. How are you doing? Thank you for having me. So I do want to point out, obviously, you guys have had a pretty big summer, even with everything going on. Obviously, mm -hmm. Knuckle Puck released the album 2020, which is amazing. And I imagine is going to be an enormous success. I've just been kind of obsessed with it the last several weeks. And I know that you guys were planning on touring with Simple Plan and Newfound Glory. You had kind of this big US mm -hmm. tour scheduled that unfortunately was canceled. A quick question I have is, who has been the most fun band to tour with, in your opinion? Maybe it's not just one, but who has been like a big fun band that you have enjoyed playing with? We've always really liked touring with State Champs and Neck Deep. We did one tour with Modern Baseball like years ago, and it was like one of my favorite tours I've ever done. It was just so much fun, very inclusive environment. And uh, I like touring with them a lot. Seaway, they were yeah. the first band we ever went on tour with. A really small DIY like week long tour out to the East Coast and we did it with them. So we like touring with them a lot too. And how do you enjoy the, uh, the tour life? It's cool. There's a lot to be grateful for when you're doing it. And sometimes it's going well and sometimes it's not going well. But at the end of the day, it's very easy to realize that it's a very unique and special experience. It's not perfect. It's rather grinding, but, uh, I don't know. It's just like kind of fun being somewhere completely new every single day, you know? Yeah. Seeing all the different cities and just being with your boys, I imagine it's got to be a, a blast. Yeah. Yeah. It's super fun. That's great. And then, so I also want to point out this new album of yours. Obviously you guys have released a couple of videos already. Breathe, which features Derek Sanders made a parade is so good. And the video is super cool.
And then Earthquake, when I saw that video for the first time, when that popped up on YouTube, Driving in the Car, it's such a feel-good song. Those are two of my favorites from the album. And I think the one that hasn't been made a video yet, at least I don't think it has, RSVP, I think actually might be my favorite song from the album. It's really so good. Yeah, dude. The guitar riff in the chorus, which I assume you wrote. No. Oh, you didn't write that? Okay. Not at all. No, it Nick sucks. wrote that. Oh, Nick wrote that. <laughs> yeah, it's actually yeah. terrible, man. <laughs> it's so good. It's just like, it reminds me of just like old school pop punk. It sounds so good. Yeah, those three you just named. A big motivation for writing the songs we did on 2020 had a lot to do with like the feelings we would get listening to bands like Blink and Newfound and like Green yep. Day growing up. You know, very carefree, very positive without being like cheesy or corny about it. Yeah. But uh, yeah, we were definitely trying to elicit those emotions that you just noted. Yeah, you totally do. All the songs yeah, so, are super fun. That's good. It worked. It's an amazing we, album. We Thank you. Appreciate it. If you can handle both of us gushing and saying it's an awesome album, I really enjoy it as well. <laughs> um, I've been listening to Sidechain and Green Eyes. Those are my two favorites right now. Thanks. Did you write the guitar intro on Green Eyes? No, Nick did. Okay. <laughs> this whole interview is just going to be like, nah, Nick wrote that. <laughs> yeah. Nick wrote Tell us more about Nick, please. You yeah. might still know the answer. So it reminds me of something, but I can't place it. So do you have any idea if it was like inspired by something or like, I don't know. I just texted Keenan one day and I'm like, dude, this guitar on Green Eyes is sweet. It reminds me of something, but maybe I'm just making it up. To bring it somewhat full circle, I don't have like a specific answer. I don't think Nick has ever noted like, oh, right. I used this song or band as like the foundation. But what it reminds me of is I was watching this interview with Tom DeLonge and he was talking about writing Blink songs and how he always likened them to being like lullaby songs, like just very mm -hmm. innocent and short and catchy. And the way that the intro to Green Eyes was written, it just reminds me of 
of that, like a blink song with a like a lullaby effect where it's kind of just like very simplistic, but it's very effective. Awesome. How much of this album was written pre-COVID? Was it written during the entirety, like since March or? It's interesting. I think because we put it out so like deep into COVID. I mean, like it came out not even a month ago. Yeah. So I think a lot of people think that we wrote it over COVID, but we started writing for it August of 2018. So wow. wow. Like a long time ago. And then we've had this really bad habit of like being like, okay, it's time to write a new record. Let's do that as well as go on as many tours as we can. Yeah. And it just kind of, which makes sense because that's how we make money and pay our rent and stuff. But yeah. we were like, okay, this one, let's try not to tour as much and to really carve out as much time as possible. So we started writing in August of 2018. And then like throughout the entirety of 2019, we did like maybe like two tours. We went to Japan in January and then we did a co-headline over citizen in the summer and that was it. And the rest of that time was spent writing and recording and we started recording nearly a year ago from now. So like November, 2019, like mid November. Mm -hmm. Um, and then some of it was like cut up because of the holidays, like Thanksgiving and Christmas. And I think our like last day in the studio was January 5th, like very early January, 2020. It was done, mixed, mastered, artwork was done, layout was done, everything was done and finalized. And so well before COVID hit, well before March, you know, mm. everything was just done. It was just like a matter of, well, what do we do now? Yeah. <laughs> like, right. It's oh. like everything is ready to go, but like, it's probably not the best idea that we just put it out there because we're feeling impulsive, you know? Yeah. So was September the original like slated release date or did you keep no. kind of pushing it back? And then it's like, this isn't going away. We might as well just release this and start promoting it in whatever way we can. It was exactly that. It was like, it was supposed to come out in May. I think the original release date was like May 22nd and in like a non-pandemic world, right? And so then we kept pushing it back. We're like, well, maybe we could do... I don't know, like June or July now. And then like that, we we're like, that's not good. Let's, let's keep pushing it back. And so I think we had landed on September because we were like, still didn't know much about it, but also still kind of like naive. We were just like, maybe we'll be able to tour in November. And so if that's the case, then September would be appropriate. Right. It would still be fresh and we could still like push it and tour off of it. But like, that's definitely still not happening. But at the end of the day, we were like, in general, we want this album to come out this year. We don't want to just keep sitting on it until we can tour again, because like, we don't know when that's going to be a reality. We were like, people are just at home. Might as well give them something, you know? It's got to be such a weird feeling sitting on an album that you worked so hard for and just wanting everybody <laughs> to be able to hear it and then not being able to do that. It's such a crazy concept to me, but... The timeline was so different from every other release we've had, you know, but I mean, nothing we could really do. Yeah. So, no doubt. Not a bad thing. This week we're discussing Blink-182's album self-titled. Mike and I were just having a discussion here, Kev. Is it self-titled or their untitled album? Do you know? I call it self-titled just because that's what I've always called it, but I've heard a lot of people argue that. 
Okay. You know, like there's two camps. Yeah. But, That's exactly what um, we, were, we were arguing. <laughs> yeah. heated. Like, I don't think either is wrong. I just have always called it self-titled just because I saw the band name on the album cover. So I'm like, oh, it's, I mean, you could probably also have a third camp calling it Blink-182. I never heard anyone really call it that. We were sort of split between self-titled and untitled. I'm not really sure what the answer is, but maybe we'll never know. No, I don't (laughs) think so. Is Blink-182, are they one of your favorite bands growing up? If you had to sort of rank them... And I know that you probably have a number of bands that you were listening to back then, but where do they sort of fall in your favorite bands through middle school, high school? Blink is definitely my number one, like definitely my introduction to anything under the umbrella of punk music in general. Yeah. And definitely like my gateway band to lots of different bands. I kind of assume that because I guess it's a good general assumption that if somebody's into pop punk, Blink's going to be within their top five or, or yeah what have you, but um, definitely yeah that's huge and i think this album how does this compare to say anima take off your pants and jacket where does it sort of rank if you kind of had to choose it's definitely my favorite one i loved them all growing up and i think for a while for me it was take off your pants and jacket because that was the first blink record i got into gotcha. when i was like 11 but i just keep coming back to this one I'll listen to the other ones like Anima and Dude Ranch and uh, Take Our Pants and Jacket and like Buddha and Shashire Cat and stuff. But like more so like I listen to that stuff when I'm like in a feel good like summer kind of mood. Yep. Or just because. But this one I just keep coming back to like generally, you mm-hmm. know, so I, I think this is definitely my most favorite one. Yeah, there's so many different sounds on it. I mean, there's some happy songs, some sad songs. It's mm-hmm. totally different than their other stuff, which is which is awesome. Yeah. Well, Kev, this is your favorite band and your favorite album from your favorite band. So I'm excited to hear some of your opinions. You good to dive in here? Yeah, man. Let's do okay, it. Okay, let's do it. Track number one, Feeling This. So as we know, this is the lead single of the album. It received Mm -hmm. critical acclaim, peaked number two on the Billboard's Modern Rock Tracks chart. Huge phenomenon. It was all over the radio. Music video was super popular. What do you remember about this song? What was it about this song that sort of sucked you into the album? I was listening to it today. And, you know, when I was like 12 or 13 and I first heard it, to me, it just sounded like every other Blink song that I loved. Right. And it does for a reason. It's kind of interesting. It's like the only song on self-titled that sounds like traditional Blink-182. Yeah. And there's even parts of it that sound like really old Blink-182. Like I feel like the bridge kind of sounds like uh something that would be on like Cheshire Cat or Buddha. That simple chord progression and repeating melody and uh it's like ability to just get stuck in your head. Take 
growing up with it, I was like, oh, this is like deliberately supposed to sound like traditional Blink-182. But at the time, I had no frame of reference. So I was just like, yeah, it just sounds like Blink. There's no real significant difference here. Mm -hmm. But then listening to the rest of the album, you're like, this is, (laughs) it's surprising that that song even ended up on the album. I love that they put it first because it came out in 2003. Imagine getting a CD of it, plugging it in and listen to it. You're like, oh yeah, another Blink (laughs) record. And then like obvious starts and they're just like psych. Like this is not like the rug got pulled out from underneath you, which I think is from a artistic integrity standpoint is the coolest thing ever. Yeah. You know, it was like a gut punch. Yeah. In a good way though. I, I, yeah, I remember the music video a lot when I was a kid and it was so cool watching music videos from back then from like any band, but especially Blink because that was kind of like the heyday, like the golden era of big budget, like rock bands, you yeah, know, in was. general. And it's so cool just watching music videos back then because they're like little movies. It's a little bit different now, but I can only imagine what the budgets were back then. I don't know, that's the kind of directors you're able to work with. Not saying it's, you know, pales in comparison now, but there are like significant differences you sure. know, between then and now. What was funny about that music video is, so Mike and I went to private school most of our lives and we had to wear mm. uniforms to school. Me too. You did too? Okay. Yeah. I remember when I saw this video for the first time, it spoke to me because it was these kids in their school uniforms, essentially in a penitentiary in this prison. They're, you know, marching into class or prison. It's this weird, like, school prison, uh, combo. And finally they decide, like, they're going to rebel and they start ripping off their uniforms and jumping on tables and throwing stuff mm-hmm. at the teachers who were also the wardens. And I just remember it just seemed like that really spoke to me as like a, a sixth grader, seventh grader watching that for the first time and thinking, Oh yeah, I'm going to go into school tomorrow and do the same thing. Yeah, yeah, right. It's a very like appropriate video for the song too, because again, for this record, it's like at the time, it's the last traditional blink you will hear, you know, for the rest of the record. And so the music video is appropriate in the way that I feel like the actors in it were responding to traditional blink criteria, you know, Mm -hmm. just like youth and rebellion and individuality. And so I just think it was a very taking your clothes off. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, pretty much. That's all we wanted to do back then. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, they were telling you to do it in their album titles, Yeah, you know, take off your pants and jacket. (laughs) Um, And so in a way it was like very smart. I enjoy that. It's not just like a throwaway catchy pop punk song. You know, sometimes like when you hear like a hit, you kind of want to skip it. Just mm-hmm. because you've heard it, it's kind of like diluted. Oh, yeah. I never feel that way with feeling this. Totally agree with you. I really like the way Kev described it because this was the first Blink album that was going to come out when I was a fan. I was like 10 or 11. So yeah. I was going to go to the store like the day this came out and get this album. And same thing. I listened to this song. I'm like, awesome. The next song came on. I'm like, wait a second. Like, what happened to like the goofy guys and <laughs> running naked down the street? Yeah. But Mark's part in the bridge is still one of my favorite parts of any song. I just love it. Me too. Whenever it comes on, it's like, that's my jam. Like I'm singing every, yep. every line. I feel like I could not rap along to like real rap songs, but that's like my rap. The way Mark spits it in the bridge, it has like a hip hop quality to it. And I 
I bet that was like a definite influence to him when he was writing and recording that part for sure. Then you have Tom like screaming from across the studio and like Travis on the drums backing it all up. It's just, it is a great okay. song. And I like the way you put it. It's kind of, this is the blink you remember now. Check out the blink that we are now. Yeah. Yeah. This song, let me hit you with this. Let me see if you guys knew this one. So the song originated on the first day of production on the album and they wrote it in one day. Really? I was shocked to find that out, but that's some, crazy. Isn't that crazy? Something yeah. that Mike and I discovered talking in earlier episodes, it's that sometimes these bands, they'll create a hit song. Like the first single will be the last song they wrote. And in mm-hmm. one day, like some 41 in all killer, no filler fat lip, they wrote that as their last song and they wrote it in a few hours. Interesting. And that kind of blows my mind. Like you can create this amazing success in such a short amount of time. And I was thinking, when you guys write an album, do you have any idea like this song is going to be our single? This song is going to be a massive hit. Like, do you have an inkling that that's the case? Sometimes, uh, sometimes you're right, but also sometimes you're wrong, but it's not for better or for worse. Really. Right. It just sort of happens. I remember on Copacetic, the song we all thought was going to be like the mega hit was the third song, Poison Pen Letter. And yeah. we deliberately put that song third because we thought it was going to be like the most popular one on the album. Mm -hmm. It's a popular, like a lot of people like it, but at the end of the day, like we still didn't pick it to be a single. And I don't know. It's just like, it's interesting how you go into it thinking like, Oh, this is going to be like the number one. Yeah. And then it's like a hidden gem more. So it's Um, fascinating. Yeah. Like I wonder that about blink. Did they realize that this song that they wrote in one day on the first day was going to be the one that carried the most weight? right away i think so at that point like they had to have known what their band was at that point i like to think that they were thinking like we know how to write a good blink song like no one else does it better than us so let's do that because we know we can do it well again yep this song it does have my tattoo line oh this song has your tattoo line all right yeah let's hear it what is it kev every week I just picked my favorite line on the album and then it slowly morphed into this is the line I would get tattooed on me. Um, so now Mike is basically fully tatted from, uh, from top <laughs> down. So I'm never actually going to get any of these tattoos, but that Bad aside, attitude, come on <laughs> on this one. It's, it's simple. It's short and sweet. It's fate fell short this time. There you mm-hmm. go. I love I that. I always thought that was such a cool sentiment. When I first heard the song, I was like, Oh, that's the line that like sticks out to me the most. Even though when you're what, like 12 or 13, like, yeah, you're like, I don't even really know what this means, but I just <laughs> like think it sounds cool. Yeah. You know? Yeah. No, it's totally true. It's like, how can fate yeah. be wrong? How can it fail you? But <laughs> what limited knowledge we had about fate back then. Yeah. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. We knew it was important. Yeah. I was definitely more into the music video than the, the <laughs> lyrical content. <laughs> Track number two, obvious. Sense of revenge. 
Okay. So we talked about how feeling this was a little bit more in tune with their older sound. And then obviously this one takes a bit of a turn. So Mm -hmm. what are your thoughts? As soon as feeling this ends and then right when obvious starts, the first word I think of is like psych. Yeah. (laughs) This isn't going to be a typical blink record. Yeah. Um, and just off of the guitar riff in the beginning and the way that it's tuned, it's tuned in like, I think it sounds like D standard, which is not mm. typical blink tuning. Typical blink tuning is just like E standard, just like very like vibrant and fresh and poppy and clean. Yep. Uh, and this sounds like deliberately dirty off the bat. And it's super heavy too, which you could hear them kind of toying with before like heavier aspects, but like nothing compared to this. Uh, yeah. And it's jarring and deliberately dark. Like they had to have known this is like a, like a sincere departure from everything else. Yeah. I thought the same thing and I wrote down something similar. It's the most hard hitting song I think I've heard of Blink up to this point. And I think mm-hmm. there are hard hitting songs on this album later on, but this is the first one where we're like, whoa, they're going for something totally different here. Yep, absolutely. It is a curveball, you're right. Mm-hmm. A lot of these songs that stood out to me that the musical tempo or the music itself just kind of takes a complete turn like in the middle of the song. From this on, I've noticed each song kind of, there's a part where the music almost changes and then changes back. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure if that's just them trying to avoid getting bored during a song or just really wanting to try to change things up and explore as many different sounds as possible. Yeah. With obvious, what is it? After the second chorus, it goes into like the bridge and then the outro and the bridge starts with like this new guitar riff. And it's this very new part that wasn't recurring before. And then you hear the outro with like the same chorus vocals. I've always thought that was a really smart way to tie the whole song around and to still incorporate smart songwriting it wasn't just like let's do something different and just like make it deliberately weird like i like that they were still there's a purpose to it it seems yeah yeah yeah, exactly they were still leaning on the weird leg but also still leaning on let's still write like a objectively good song which i i feel like encapsulates a lot of the songs all of the songs on this album you know the one thing that always stands out to me in this song is the guitar riff in the chorus Mm-hmm. It's just so Same. powerful to me. And yeah. you would know better than I would because you're a <laughs> professional guitarist. But I wrote that down hoping that you would agree with me. Um, I do. Yeah. 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 It's very heavy and it's heavy because Tom is playing it on single notes. Yeah. And there's something about it that makes it like more punchy and uh, you can hear the nickel like vibrating more when he mm-hmm. plays it with mm-hmm. the single uh on the single strings. It has always sounded super cool. Yeah. Track number three, I Miss You. Shadow in the background of the moor 
the unsuspecting victim of darkness in the valley. We can live like Jack and Sally if we want. So here we are, the second single of the album, obviously another massive hit. When Mike and I did the Enema of the State album, we kind of picked out all the small things as like the Blink-182 song. Like if you just ask a random person, tell me a song that Blink-182 has written and performed. For sure. In my mind, it's all the small things. And Mike kind of disagreed. And he was like, you know what? I think I Miss You might have actually been Mm -hmm. more famous overall within their lifetime as a band. You forget how big this song was. It was everywhere back then. Mm Mm-hmm. It was such Super a crazy massive. big follow-up to feeling this. It has like a ballady kind of thing without, do you know what I mean? Like, you know, like hair metal bands would have like ballads and stuff. Yeah, for sure. Like this is like their ballad because it sounds really pretty and like gorgeous and smooth. Yeah, it's interesting. Like, I think if you were to, you know, stop a stranger in the street, ask them where two Black 22 songs, they would say all the small things that I miss you. Okay. And within like recent years, I'm, and I mean like from six years ago, to now Mm -hmm. the song is like kind of regained popularity online with like memes of tom's verse you (laughs) know like just like where are you and (laughs) like i i feel like i feel like it gets a lot of guff in the sense of like it's funny (laughs) and i see how people get there with that joke I listen to it again and again, and it just like blows me away. It's yeah. super good. The lyrics are super thoughtful and endearing and haunting at the same Very time, haunting. which is, it's obviously haunting. Like it sounds like creepy new elements. Like so many times in traditional blink songs, there's just like a million elements of feel good youth music. Mm-hmm. You know, we're starting to see them incorporate different elements into the lyrics and how they're choosing to express themselves and the words they choose. Like they use like dark words mm-hmm. talking about spiders and, and stuff and like Halloween and morgues. And it's just like deliberately dark and gothic in the same sense of how a lot of like cure stuff and like Robert Smith lyrics are like deliberately dark. Earlier you described this song as pretty. And I was like, I understand what he's trying to say because it's such like a well put together song. And I was like, mm-hmm. I don't know if I would describe it as pretty. I think I'd probably describe <laughs> it as creepy first, but Cre- yeah, creepy, yeah. pretty is yeah. 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 Like um, on purpose. On purpose. Yeah. Intentional. Yeah. Well, deliberate. It's kind of funny. I don't know if I ever really put this together, but there are specific references to nightmare before Christmas in the song. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Live like Jack and Sally. That's a reference to the characters from nightmare before Christmas. And then, the first verse is 
talking about things that happen in that movie, which obviously are very creepy things like spiders. And so they're intentionally bringing on this like nightmarish feeling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All it's this, just like, so doom dark. And gloom. It's like, exactly. Yeah. It's very gloomy. It's over the top dark. Yeah. They've explored darker subjects on prior records. Like the one that sticks out to me the most is stay together for the kids. Yep. You know, pretty dark subject, but it hasn't been like really executed like this until now, you yep. know, until this record. When I was taking these notes today, I was a constant theme with almost every single song was just like, this is dark. Like this is a dark record, <laughs> generally yeah. speaking, subtracting feeling this. And then everything else after that is like, it's very moody and gloomy and emotional. Yep. I had the same note. There weren't too many happy points on the album. There right. are some more upbeat songs. Like there are some songs that if you're just listening to the tune itself, if you're just kind of singing through it, yeah. you might miss the deeper, darker themes. But once you actually read through the lyrics, which I did today, I was like, oh man, yeah, this doesn't really turn a corner at any point. No, definitely not. You had brought up how for this album, Tom and Mark oftentimes would go and write things on their own and then come back and see what went together well. And yeah. I think I read in this case, the parts that Mark sings and the parts that Tom sings, they wrote them completely independently of one another. And the fact that it it came together to form such a perfect, complete song, I think is just pretty interesting. It that was their process, yeah. It shows like yeah. how in tune they are with each other as well, you know? Which is kind of crazy because leading up to this album, I think that was a time when there was a lot of tension within the band that's when they kind of went mm -hmm. their separate ways and did their side projects and i think they did bring some of that tension into the studio with them but clearly the chemistry they had was able to overcome that this is like lennon and mccartney doing abbey road it's like these two brilliant minds that are kind of best friends but also kind of like super competitive with one another and they have mm -hmm. a common goal but they can't help but get in each other's way at times well that's like fallout yeah. boy we talked about that with Fallout Boy. They were constantly at each other's throats in the studio. And some of that tension came out in the music, which is so fascinating to me. Track number four, Violence. So I was thinking that the intro to this song, it reminded me of like a fight scene in a musical. I could picture West Side Story, the two different gangs, like the Sharks and the Jets coming at each other like... Oh, okay. interesting. Like the snapping? yeah. Interesting. And okay. it's weird that it's called violence because it feels like it's this lead up to violence, like troubles brewing. It does have this um, almost ominous feeling to it at the intro. Much like how obvious starts after feeling this, you have a miss you who it's still definitely not like your cliche blink song, but it's very ballady, very pretty sounding. And then like you jump into violence and it's again, it's like psych. Here's this very weird riff, very weird beat behind it. 
I've always thought the beat sounded like something you'd hear in like a club, like a dance beat, you know? Mm -hmm. It was just cool hearing them explore like very foreign ideas and executing them quite well. Yeah, I thought the verse was almost like spoken word poetry. Mm -hmm. It's just sort yeah. of him talking in a strange tempo. Like it, it just didn't feel like a blink song. It was so totally outside of the pop punk realm that I almost couldn't place it into a genre. That's how different it was. The verse, like, it hardly has a melody. Even if you just solo Tom's voice, there's not really like a catchy hook or melody there. But I think that kind of lends itself because then when the chorus does come around, very strong melody and it kind of just like pops out better yeah. because of the lack of melody in the verses. And also Mark's voice in the verses behind Tom's voice. I picked up on like, like a poltergeist theme. Yeah. Like Mark's voice has this weird reversing echo effects. And then you have like the second or two of static, like mm -hmm. in be between the verses and stuff. Today was the first time I, I pieced that together. I was like, Oh, I wonder if that movie was like an actual reference for this song. And if, yeah. if so, I, I think that's honestly like super cool, but maybe not. I don't know. Yeah. I wouldn't put anything past them, honestly. Yeah, true. You're right about the verse and the chorus. Keenan and I were texting this week and I was like, I don't really like violence. And you know what it is? It's the verse because I love the chorus mm -hmm. and you're exactly yeah. right. It's like when the chorus kicks in, I'm like, sick, this chorus is great. But the verse is just like, I'm props to them for doing something different and trying it out. But mm -hmm. I'm also really glad that they didn't decide to make it a thing across multiple tracks because for sure. Mike, you're just uh you're just a blink one and two traditionalist. That's all that is. <laughs> I am. We talked about it on Enema, and I'm not sure if we ever came to a conclusion, but are you in the Tom camp or the Mark camp? Great question, and I feel like I have an interesting answer. So He's a Travis guy. <laughs> yeah, I'm a Scott Rayner guy. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Oh, that's um, like that. <laughs> um growing up I was definitely like a Tom guy because mm. of I just identified with playing guitar and, but I still loved Mark songs as well. But now that I'm older, now that I'm a 28 year old adult, I often find myself more attracted to Mark songs pre self-titled music. I don't know what it is. Like I, I love it all still. When I was a kid, like first discovering punk music, I was really into Tom songs because it sounded deliberately punk. Like it sounded like really nasal and snarly. Definitely edgier. Uh, yeah. But I don't know. I have just been more into like Mark songs in my adult life. But on this album is like the, uh, that doesn't apply. Like yeah. I love Tom songs as much as I love Mark songs in this record. It's a perfect blend of both their styles kind of come together. Yeah. yeah. That's a good answer. I like that answer. I think we're kind of on the same page. I think yeah. I probably lean Mark. If you have like gun to my head, probably would say Mark, but okay. I don't think you can like blink without appreciating Tom and his style because like you said, it's mm -hmm. like, very in-your-face punk. There's too many great songs that he sings on that you can't just skip over. So 
Yeah. But I was yeah. saying, if you're a huge Tom fan, you might have come on and said, Violence is the best song on this album, hands down. <laughs> and I would feel awful yeah. for disagreeing with you. But. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's when you just sort of uh, lie and like, oh, yeah, I, lo- I love that song, too. It's, it's really good. For sure. <laughs> um, okay, talk about a curveball here. On the actual album, Kev, is is the interlude, is that just part of the song? I couldn't remember. At least on Spotify, it comes up as Stockholm Syndrome interlude as its own track. Okay. But if I recall, the CD just, you went into Stockholm Syndrome, but it was longer with that intro. That's what I thought. Okay, that's what I remembered too. Yeah. So I guess on Spotify, track number five, five. Stockholm Syndrome interlude. My dearest. I've missed you very, very much since that last night we were together. And we'll hold that night especially in my memories for years to come. I've been turning it over and over in my mind lately. I've read your letter through at least four times. And will probably read it more times before I'm through. I've been sitting here, looking at your picture, and getting more homesick every minute. I've wanted that picture more than anything else I know of, except, of course, you yourself. I keep thinking of you, darling. So this one was kind of cool. I never knew this one either, but I did read that the letter that's sort of spoken in the song was a real letter that Mark Hopps' grandfather wrote to his grandmother during World War II. Mm -hmm. Once you kind of know that, you're like, that carries some meaning now. Yeah, I remember reading that in the liner notes for the song. Just remembering like, oh, like it's cool that they made it personal. You could relate it back to one of the members in the band. It wasn't like, uh, oh, I was watching this old World War II documentary and there was this cool letter on it. So I, I thought we'd put it in the song, which would still be a cool move to do. Yeah. Uh, but like it's so much more real and authentic when one of the members goes, that's my grandparents yeah. talking to each other. Super cool. Real emotion behind it. He does say that he read her letter four times. Four whole times. Yeah. <laughs> I'll probably yeah. read a couple more. Yeah. <laughs> I like yeah, I like it that he capped it that. I read it four times and I got the message. It portrays, I guess, just missing your significant other, but also being at war. When you have downtime, like in the 40s, what do you have to do but to read like a letter? Yeah, no iPhone. Like yeah. yeah, you can't do anything else, really. So yeah. just look at her picture, read her <laughs> yeah. letter. I did think this was interesting. I have no idea if this was intentional or, or not, but the last two songs on this album are Here's Your Letter and I'm Lost Without You. And oh. obviously this is a letter mm-hmm. and he says, I'm completely lost without you, darling. So mm-hmm. do you think they pluck those titles from the content of this letter in addition to this being its own track or semi-track? I think so because there's real intentional theming across this record that is absent on their other records which isn't a bad thing but you can really tell that they tried to string so many of these songs together with each other they do it like constantly and that's a great example so that leads into track six stockholm syndrome
this is my favorite song on the album. Really? Wow. I don't think it always has been that way. In fact, I think always used to be my favorite on the album, but listening through it again this past week and like really listening to it, I just kept coming back to this one. This one is definitely, definitely one of my favorites, but also generally speaking, one of my most favorite Blink songs. With every song that came on before it, it, it is like a deliberate departure, but also I like how they just keep pushing the envelope. This is a very aggressive song. It kind of like lacks a lot of structure. It has like random parts that happen. And the only recurring things that happen are like the chorus where it's like the Mark and Tom vocals going back and forth. It has been written that this is probably the most obvious example of their experimentation with this new sound. Mm -hmm. And on this song, they apparently recorded it using a microphone dating back to the 1950s. And they use all these different techniques on the vocals that they've never used before. And so I think that's probably what you're hearing, Kev, which is kind of crazy. That brought up a question that I had, which is, what's the craziest thing or the weirdest thing that you guys have tried during recording? Is there anything that stands out where you're like, you know what, let's just give this a whirl and see what happens. And it either works or doesn't work. Um, the one that's coming to mind is in the outro of Untitled. It's like that long looping outro mm John did like a lot of different drum layers. Mm -hmm. And I remember our producer, Seth, tracked one of the drum layers. He held a microphone up to like an air vent because you can hear, you were able to hear John's drums coming through like this air vent, but it was really like echoey and faint and soft, yeah. but it was like able to add this cool layer to the outro. I'm sure there's other stuff sprinkled in there. That's that I'm pretty just, experimental. Like, yeah, there's other examples <laughs> awesome. I'm forgetting, but that one definitely comes to mind. I just remember at the time thinking like, whoa, this is like the coolest thing I think yeah. we've ever tried, you know? And it wasn't even like our idea. I just remember like Seth telling us about it. That's cool. I guess I should also ask, so you mentioned that this is one of your favorite Blink songs on the album and one of your favorite Blink songs overall. We do always say our favorite song from the album. Have we passed yours yet or is it still upcoming? If you had to pick. My two are still upcoming. Still coming? Okay. I shamed him out of saying violence. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, I'm going to go now. I should <laughs> sign off. Um, I should put Stockholm Syndrome a part of that list. So I think I definitely have three. Okay. Okay. Maybe that's even fair. four, man. I, I don't know. <laughs> it's like, so good. We'll, I know. It's so we'll, hard we'll, to choose. Yeah. Yeah. We'll, we'll get to them. Don't worry. That's but okay. Stockholm Syndrome is definitely one of them. One of okay. them that like stands out to me the most. Cool. This is awesome, dude. This is so much fun to talk through this. You bring such a yeah. different perspective on everything that I guess I should have seen coming, but you have such a different like ear for this type of music, which is crazy to me. For sure. It's so cool listening to this album when I was 12 and then playing in a band and recording a lot and then kind of realizing like what went into it. There's so much more experimentation on this album. Yeah. And it, it was just cool to see that and hear that through a different lens now, you know? 
Yeah. You're giving us the insider knowledge. I love it. <laughs> cool. So cool. It's great. It's more thorough and more uh, succinct and smarter than just, this sounds cool. <laughs> well, I really I like, like this, this one, one too, actually. You have yeah. good thoughts every once in a while, but. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Track number seven, Down. Down is the third single from the album. Mm-hmm. As we know, obviously another major hit, had a music video associated with it. This was actually the point in the album where I wrote, are all these songs just sad and gloomy? Mm-hmm. And I think the answer is yes. But um, yeah, what do you make of this one? So obviously a big hit. I'm sure you knew this one really well back in the day. Mm-hmm. My very first band ever used to cover this one, as well as like a slew of other Blink songs. But yeah. what is this, like the middle of the album now? I this one is more in traditional Blink style, mm-hmm. I think, but it still has like this grit to it. It still sounds like rather gritty overall. I also remember reading in the liner notes that Tom wrote the lyrics to the song, probably about a real thing that happened to him, but just like about a general thing. And I've also noticed that a lot of the lyrics kind of surround that on this album. Like sometimes they're not about specific real life scenarios some of them are but it's cool hearing them explore things that are less tangible like i think he wrote in the liner notes for down that it's about a boy and a girl being in a car together when it's raining and the boy wanting to kiss her or something Mm -hmm. and that is like a cooler inspiration for the song than going like oh yeah like this is something that you know specifically happened to me when i was like 17 or something for some reason making it more uh vague in a good way it could be about anybody or anything or in any context yeah somebody who's in a relationship can be like oh this is about my relationship because it is just Mm -hmm. just general enough the music video yeah super cool like again like a mini movie exactly uh what are they in like southern california they're going through like the viaducts right like Mm -hmm. and it's like the car is racing thinking back that's probably like a grease reference right I would imagine like going, it has to be going back to like your West Side Story fight scene yeah. kind of <laughs> kind of inspiration. I didn't realize musicals but, were going to come up quite so much in this. Uh, yeah, right. Discussing Blink yeah. too, but yeah, there you go. I actually just watched Grease for the first time over the summer. My girlfriend and I went to a drive-in and they were playing Grease. Oh, really? and I just like never seen it before, and uh, I just made that connection now. I was like, huh, that was probably a Grease reference. But I'm sure I mean, it was. I also remember like. Again, so Blink was like my introduction to everything punk. Mm-hmm. And I was a huge Misfits fan around the time when I was a huge Blink fan. And I remember the scene in the, the down video where it's like a backyard party. Tom is wearing a Misfits shirt. I remember seeing that and like it blowing my mind. <laughs> but in retrospect, it's so that's so expected, I guess, yeah. because like I just didn't realize that 
so many punk bands and influences were just like interconnected with each other. Like, of course it makes sense that Tom likes the Misfits. They're a punk band. Yeah, and exactly. It, it just makes perfect sense. But at the time when I was like, you know, 15 or 16, I was just like, Oh my God, that's, it could it be like, that's the coolest <laughs> thing ever, you know, but it well, makes perfect sense now. It's cool that you mentioned that because here we are looking at you guys, listening to knuckle puck and being like, Oh my God, Kev Maida loves Blink-182. Of course that makes sense. He grew up with yeah. the same time we did. We listen to Blink-182. Why wouldn't it be Kev's favorite band? Like it's our favorite band. So it's kind of sure. weird you mentioned that because I was literally thinking the exact same thing earlier. Yeah, I'm a 28-year-old man who still plays in a pop-punk band. Of yeah, course so. I love Blink-182 still. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, of course. It just makes sense. One thing I will say about this video, I rewatched it for the first time in a while. And first of all, I read that it features actual ex-gang members in the video, which is kind of cool. Um, really? Because there is sort of this, yeah, there is sort of this backyard party scene and, you know, these guys that are clearly rough and tumble. So I thought that was cool. And then also the cop who shows up to bust up the party and chase the guy through the streets is actually Terry Crews, the actor. Yeah. Terry I mean, at the time when they first saw it, when I was a kid, no, I didn't know that. But like, as you just see more movies, when you grow up, you're like, hey, that's the guy in the <laughs> down video. Yeah. Like, he's a real actor. Outside I had of no video. idea. Yeah. That's yeah. pretty cool, too. I don't think he was that famous then, but obviously watching no. it now, he's ginormous. So. When did all those Old Spice commercials come out? Was that like, that was five or six years after this, right? Like, yeah. Yeah. I, I think the Terry Old Spice commercials were like within the last like decade or so. Mid 2010s, probably. Yeah. yeah. So I saw him after that. I'm like, oh, that's the Old Spice guy. But now he's just in a ton of stuff. Now he's yeah. the Brooklyn Nine-Nine guy. And, yeah. yeah. Kev, I did have a question for you real quick. The chorus always stands out to me partially because of the way Tom sings it. Tidal wave, like just mm -hmm. the the emphasis and inflection he puts on that. But then I was kind of thinking of pop punk bands and like weather references. And obviously Blink has the tidal waves in the song. There's easy target on this album. They also compare a girl to a landslide. Um, mm -hmm. There's a couple others that came to mind, like something corporate's hurricane. The wonder years have a bunch of weather references in their songs. Mm -hmm. And I was like, knuckle puck has a song called earthquake. So is that like, I'm not sure what kind of answer I'm looking for here. Uh, in my mind, I was like, <laughs> Oh, is are, Mother are pop like, punk bands obsessed with weather? Like, what's going on here? <laughs> what's the are you uh, wanted to be a meteorologist? But yeah. like, is Mother Nature the only thing powerful enough to define like your love for somebody? It's a very easy thing that like everyone experiences. That is a very seismic scenario when there's like an earthquake or there's like a really bad storm or or something. It it, it feels like it's bigger than anything I guess you've experienced before because you have zero control over it mm -hmm. yeah. and there's nothing you can do to stop it. It's just kind of happening. So I think it's kind of easy to liken stuff like that, like weather to emotions and how someone's feeling because like a tidal wave or something, it, I'm sure whatever Tom was trying to convey in the song, he was like, I know exactly how I felt at this time. And it felt like, I was in the midst of a tidal wave, something that's like super exciting, but also terrifying and could like destroy me. Probably right. that's a very easy yeah. way to describe like most emotions, especially for mm -hmm. people who they're writing this for middle school and high school kids. In my mind, I, that's what I imagine. And so emotions back then were powerful and unpredictable, right? So mm -hmm. it just seems like a good analogy. Yeah, that's my guess. Interesting observation there, Mike. I like that. Good question. 
Yeah, yeah I just love weather. <laughs> Weatherman. <laughs> Into track eight, which is inexplicably another interlude, the fallen interlude. Yeah, right. Sick Jackin. I had never heard of him before, again, like reading the liner notes. Me neither. Uh, but I was reading today that the only member on the song is Travis playing the drums. Like, Jackin did the vocals and bass and guitars and like yeah. everything else. Kind of interesting that it's a Blink-Away 2 song, but there's only one member on it. It could have very easily have been like just like a side project that Travis did in his off time. But uh, yeah, like transplants. Like, I, yeah, exactly. I like that it still had its time and place on this album. I really appreciate that they still, again, like push the walls out further and we're like, this is still a Blink song, even though one member's on it. So can I ask you a stupid question real quick? Please. Have you seen Blink-182 live? Yes. Okay. Probably multiple times. Not as many times as you would think. I saw their big comeback tour, right? Like after the first hiatus. Mm-hmm. Um, I saw them again at Riot Fest in 2015. I saw them a third time without Tom and with mm-hmm. Skiba. And then like a fourth time with Skiba. I've really okay. only seen them like maybe four times. Because okay. when I was getting into them, they were not a band yet. They were still broken up. The reason why I bring that up, this interlude reminds me of the drum solo that Travis would do typically on tour, especially later into obviously into this album and beyond when Mm -hmm. he would be strapped to the drum stool and on the platform and they would flip him upside down and he'd go like over the audience. It was more hip hop sounding than anything else really. Yeah. Um, Yeah. This song or this interlude sounded a lot like what he would play there. He's so above any genre and he can make any genre sound good because he's such an amazing drummer. And that's what Mm -hmm. he does here. And he did it in those drum solos on tour. Yeah. He was like one of the first musicians that I looked up to that I heard him explicitly say, I don't just pull references from punk bands. I listen to a lot of like Latin and jazz and fusion music as well to like pull influence into my drumming. I think you can really hear how much he's like diversified his taste, you know? I was actually just talking to my girlfriend about this. She's like a huge Blink fan as well. And we talking about like Blink. Too if we knew that. Yeah, next time. <laughs> yeah. Blink pre and post Scott Rayner. They had like a real commercial accessibility to them with Scott and the band, especially with songs like Damn It and Josie. Yep. But I firmly believe they would not be as like famous of a band had Travis not joined because of his playing style, but also he just added a realm of celebrity to the band. He just looks like a punk drummer and he has like the attitude and the look and the style and everything. Where like 
Scott, you know, kind of didn't. He just kind of looked like an average white guy, and that's not bad. Like I look like an average white guy, yeah. but <laughs> they already like, had two of those though. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The shoes were too filled, and Travis looks like way different from Tom and Mark. You yeah, know? and that's what I mean by like an added sense of celebrity. What was the music video we were talking about? Was it "What's My Age Again" when they're running naked, or was that all the small mm-hmm. things? One of them. Uh, yeah. What's my age again? We were just like, dude, thank God Travis is in this band because he just looks so badass with all his tats. Otherwise, it would just be these two kind of pudgy white guys. And it's like, <laughs> yeah. that's not punk. Yeah. <laughs> it was yeah, all the small like, things when they're running on the well, beach. And, yeah, and yeah. It's like, oh, man, Travis Barker makes them actually look like a punk band. It was great. But you're yeah, right. Exactly, he adds like exactly. some real street cred and some he's their backbone, literally. So, yeah, yeah, definitely. I agree. Track number nine. Go. This one's just like, it's just like a punk song. Yep. They keep reiterating the fact that this isn't your typical Blink record and we're going to do something different that lines up with more of our conventional tastes and needs. But I like that they still snuck in like a genuine punk song, like a Blink punk song. I thought it was similar to feeling this. This one made me feel like old Blink. This one was... Mm -hmm. One that I thought you might hear on Enema or Take Off Your Pants and Jacket. Yep. You could easily sneak that onto one of those records and be like, okay, yeah, that's that makes sense here. Yeah. Listening to Blink when you were younger was such a special and cool circumstance because you had no frame of reference for what they were supposed to sound like. And you had no expectation. And you had no expectation for what the music even called for. Sure, I knew this was pop punk music, influenced by punk, but like, what did that even mean to me at 13? I didn't mm-hmm. know. Like, I, I, this was for a while the only punk band I listened to. Mm-hmm. So I could listen to the fallen interlude and then go. I would not even know a sense of like discrepancy or like, Oh, well, this clearly doesn't fit in. I just like that. I just didn't even have that lens. And mm-hmm. I think that would have lined with me. If I was 28 at the time in 2003, I think I would have listened to this and maybe just not have accepted it for what it was. I think there would have been something in me that would have made it more difficult to absorb right away. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting how that works, you know, like it was just all the same to me. Yeah. Honestly, like I don't listen to as much pop punk today as I did when I was younger. I same. think part of yeah. that was whether it's you get older or you go through high school, like people are like, you're listening to whatever band, like, Oh, you're still listening to blink or good Charlotte or whatever mm-hmm. I was listening to back then. I'm like, Oh, yeah, they're right. Like, I should listen to something else. But like you said, there's something really awesome about just being at this naive age and you're listening to this album and it's one of your favorite bands and you're just completely enjoying it for what it is, not mm-hmm. trying to overcomplicate things with like, does this theme fit or musically, is this where they should be at in their career? It's like, yeah, no, this is just a cool song. Yeah. Go was no different from the Fallen Interlude, and the Fallen Interlude was no different from like Waggy on Dude Ranch. It was all the same to me for only a positive purpose. You know, mm-hmm. you can kind of start to see in this album there was friction in the band, and part of it was Mark not being positive. He liked 
the sound in which they were headed towards. And then eventually when you see like plus 44 versus angels and airwaves, you can kind of see where Mark's sound goes. It's definitely more like punk. And then Tom becomes more experimental and kind of, mm-hmm. you know, do whatever you want. And then even Blink's most recent albums with Mark and Skiba, it's like hearing the song kind of reminds me of classic Blink and it is a Mark song and an actually really heavy song, which I never realized until I actually read through the lyrics because it just sounds so positive and upbeat. You're like, this is about like domestic abuse. And it's like, yeah, yeah. Something I just realized today when I was listening to the album and taking notes and reading the lyrics along to the album, I've been listening to this record for 15 to 16 years. I just realized today that in the second verse, he references his own name. He says Mark in the second verse, like as if his mom is talking to him. It was just one of those things where I thought I knew the word he said there, but I just never researched it. I thought I just knew it. And then when I saw his name there today, I was just like, that's just like the coolest thing. I wrote, there's no mistaking it stems from a personal experience. They have sounds like violence, which Tom wrote about a fictional scenario in which a girl walks into a nightclub mm-hmm. or like down where again, it's like this kind of vague, half fictional scenario of a boy and a girl in a car when it's raining. You start to hear them talk about things that aren't really tangible, but then they still have this innate ability to talk about like a very specific event that happened in their lives and putting your own name in a song is there's no getting around that. Yeah. Do you know, like there's no question that it's about him. No ifs, ands or buts about that. Yeah. He has in an interview, he said, you know, when asked about this song, he said, it's a personal song. It's not specifically about my mother. And then kind of pause and said, I feel weird talking about it. So clearly, mm. if you can't even talk about the theme of the song that your band wrote, there's got to be something very powerful and emotional behind it. I yeah. thought that was very telling. Mm. That's interesting. I, I didn't, I, I don't think I've ever seen that interview. That's cool. Yeah, it was cool. Are there any songs that you guys have written that you wouldn't ever want to talk about again? <laughs> I don't think so. I, I mean, always thought that was kind of an odd phenomena like yeah millions of people have already listened to it you don't want to say like two sentences about it i don't i don't know i've never written a song so i can't speak for joe and nick because they write all the lyrics i will say i never have said this publicly and i feel bad but i wrote the lyrics to ponder on copacetic if i'm being truthful i sort of regret writing those lyrics that was five years ago now so it was probably written six years ago now and I just feel like I'm not the guy that wrote that anymore. Yeah. It just doesn't really represent how I feel, nor is it like 
what I want to hear in a song in general. But yeah. at the time, I kind of thought it was cool and everyone else liked it. So I was just <laughs> like, cool, like, let's let's go for it. But uh, so I'm like, on my behalf, I would probably pick Ponder. But like, you know, I mean, that's what being young is about, just living and learning. So I'm completely wrong. So I'm guessing yeah, so it does there's tons of songs where people are like, you know, I'm yeah. a different person than I was when I wrote that. And yeah, I think I think that's why when you go see a band, they less and less and less play their older stuff, because it's hard to still feel represented by that. We've hardly played Ponder, but like if it became like a staple in the set, I would definitely start to be like, hey, guys, can we like. I don't really feel like emotionally represented by that song anymore. It's like a 28 year old man. Right. So yeah. I think even Blink would do that with like Adam song. I know when they tour with Skiba and stuff, they deliberately don't play Adam song anymore. You know, they definitely used to like it's on Mark, Tom and Travis show. And I think it was even on like their set list supporting self titled and stuff. So they definitely used to play it like a lot. Yeah. But I think I remember hearing Mark just like, does not want to play that song anymore for personal reasons and not for like a, Oh, I'm just tired of it or something. Right. You know, well, we discussed brand news, your favorite weapon a few weeks back. And mm. that was a similar situation where brand new when they were still together and still touring. Sure. They stopped performing those songs because they were just so dated. They were all about high school drama and the really silly stuff that goes along with high school. And, Jesse went on record and said, we're too old for that now. So they stopped. I, it. So it does happen, I guess. Yeah, I get it, man. I really understand that perspective. Yeah, it's good in a particular context and a certain time and place. It definitely serves its purpose. But I can't imagine being like the people or person who wrote that and then continuing your musical career and still trying to incorporate that. It's tricky to line it all up. Yeah, I get it. You know, like I, I totally understand. Like whenever yeah. I go see a band now and maybe they don't play a song that I was hoping to hear, I'm like, whatever. I understand. Like yeah. KP probably does that like left and right. I would imagine, you know, so. Also breaking news. This just in Kev Maida wrote the lyrics for Ponder and that's it. <laughs> <laughs> Dropping that bombshell on the pop punk project. <laughs> I like, it's something I've like thought about, but I don't think people know I wrote those lyrics. And so. There's no reason why anyone would ask me, like, specifically about that song. So, did you say that's the only lyrics you wrote, or that that's correct. okay? Interesting, yeah. huh? Yeah, just like with like that record, it was like one of the first times I think Nick or even Joe was like, Oh, like, if you have any lyrics, you want to give them a go, like, try it out. And yeah. I was like, Oh, okay, that could be something like fun and like new to try because I've never done that with KP, and yeah. I guess, let me say, like, I don't regret it. It's just, like, when I listen to it now, I don't think it aged well. Yeah. You know? Maybe I could just look at it like, oh, that was, like, a marker of my youth. Me being, like, naive in a sense, you know? There's something maybe innocent about that. Yeah. So you can see Mark's perspective where it's, like, you don't necessarily regret it, but you also don't feel like talking about it over and over again. Yeah. Especially on their scale, too, I think. Like, right. Yeah with a song like Go or like Adam's song, it's like, Mark, you clearly wrote these lyrics. You're the one who sings the song. <laughs> Your name is in the second verse of Go. Yeah. Right. Like you wrote that in there deliberately. So I could see him probably getting tired of it and just being like, sure. Ugh, I'm just so sick of talking about this. And there was such like a massive band. I can't even like imagine what that must have felt like. 
back then, you know. Mark, if you want to retort, you can find us at poppunkprize at gmail.com. <laughs> I'd love to get your opinion. <laughs> Never thought we'd spend so much time on. I know. Go. I was like, oh, go. We're going to fly through go. And then <laughs> Kev's dropping bombshells. Yeah. <laughs> it's fascinating. Track number 10, Asthenia. And I will say off the bat, this is my favorite song from the record. Yeah. This is one of my four, four favorites. Always has been just like such a cool like groove. And it's so like loud and powerful yeah. and the guitar tones are just perfect and it's one of my favorites on the album but also maybe my favorite blink song ever wow uh, that's because huge. it's a perfect representation of what i believe the band to be and like mm -hmm. it reaches those heights that i know the band can reach it's kind of like my bar Again, dark subject material. Yep. Um, it's obviously not about something that happened to Tom, but I know he's researched. Yep. Um, I don't know. Just like a perfect Blink song to me. Very perfect. You sound like a, a proud father. Yeah, right? I, didn't, I have nothing to do with it. Yeah. I'm just, no, I mean, just like... listen to it a jillion yeah. times. There's something about, again, being a kid and being super impressionable, and you really just like latch on to things. I remember being like 12, 13 and listening to this for, for the first time on like my CD player. And it was like November, it was kind of chilly. And my brother Vince was outside in the backyard playing like pickup football with friends. And my mom was like, Kev, you should, you know, go outside and go play with your brother and your friends, go play some football. And I was just like, Dude, there's no way I'm getting <laughs> up right now to stop listening to this record to go play football. That's just not in the future. My life and is so, in the, the process of being changed right now, mom. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and it, I was probably listening to this song when she was like, oh, you should go outside and play football. It's just like, not a chance in hell, no man. Like, that's, that's awesome. not happening. But, uh, <laughs> I love yeah, the, I mean, the difference between you and Vince right there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. I think I, I was thinking about, uh, the best man speech I gave at his wedding. I think I like noted that I was just, like, he was into like, super competitive physically active sports and i was yeah. like listening to cds you know <laughs> indoors stuff like that Estenia, yeah wow okay so this is your favorite band's potentially favorite song from your favorite record so i know i have four favorites on this album but this one's <laughs> definitely tied with another one we haven't hit yet but it, it's like two sides of the same coin i regard it for the same reasons um we're gonna need a translator for uh for kev's scoring system here to figure out <laughs> where they all fall yeah this is definitely my favorite tom song of all time
I like that it's about something only very few people on this earth have experienced. It's about yeah. being trapped in space. Mm-hmm. And there's something about its level of like, I can't even reach what this might be like that just makes it cool. It just sounds like fantasy, like a good story. You know, yeah. you're not even caught up in the reality of it because there is hardly any reality in it for like the average civilian. Mike's question about weather is very similar to this, but this just seems like the yeah. next level up. Like mm-hmm. Tom needed this comparison and this analogy to express this feeling. Yeah. It's such a crazy yeah, powerful analogy and crazy powerful concept that he needed to really express that. We all know Tom's super into like extraterrestrial life and like space and stuff like that. So it only makes sense that he would liken some emotion to being trapped in space. It's very on the nose for him, but like it just makes perfect sense and it's executed super, super well. Do you think Tom will eventually make it to space? Does he, <laughs> I don't know. he wants to actually go or not? You got to imagine that he's one of the people that want to go really badly. Yeah, yeah for sure. It I just don't fascinates know. him so much. If you have the opportunity, how do you not? Here's my question, Mike. How do you know he hasn't been to space yet? That's a good point. I guess I don't. And we just yeah. don't know about it yet. Yeah. They're he's filming curious. an Amazon documentary right now. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he's like revealing information on UFOs that the government's been keeping secret forever. He may have been to space for all we know. That's true, mm-hmm. man. Like, I have no idea if all like that Illuminati stuff is real, but Tom's definitely in the pipeline somewhere in terms of like yeah. people who know things that we'll never know. Yeah, for sure. Which is super cool. Because this is just like a hobby of his. Like, I play in a band and I love music, but also like I love aliens. And I just want to research it to the fullest extent and learn as much as possible. And it turned into like a secondary career for him. It's not just him looking up like conspiracy theories on the internet anymore. So after KP releases like their eighth album and takes a break, what would be your To The Stars Academy? Here's my startup for my new fascination. What's your conspiracy theory that you're going to turn into a business here, Kev? My alien business is probably, I'm a huge like mafia head. Mm. Love Scorsese flicks and the Sopranos and stuff. So maybe something with like crime or something like that. I don't know. That's cool. I guess. Yeah. I've been to Chicago a number of times. My cousin lives out there, but one time we did the classic tourist mob bus tour. Nice. Of like yeah. all the different crime scenes in the city of Chicago. Mm-hmm. Have you ever thought maybe you could just work on one of those and like <laughs> play a gangster <laughs> and like tours. drive a tour bus? <laughs> yeah, maybe. Maybe if they have any openings, I need a job right now, anyway. So I should. <laughs> this really KP thing that, doesn't yeah. work out for you. Yeah. <laughs> I think being from Chicago like helped mold my interest in all that stuff because it's you know it's very much a part of like the city's history and stuff. So. If you're asking us, we'd love to come on your true crime podcast in like eight okay, years. Yeah. You guys will be my first guest once I get awesome. funded. Perfect. Love it. Track number 11, Always.
another single from the record, another big mm-hmm. hit, another pop sensation. What do you remember, Kev? What do you like about it? If you like it, definitely anything about it. No, I love it. Definitely like pop sensation. I really enjoy that they weren't too shy about their influences on this song and were just like upfront, like this is an 80s tribute song. Yep. Like any 80s pop song that you heard on the radio, if you were alive back then, this is what we're trying to do. That had to have been fun for them. You know, they were probably like, let's write like an 80s song and like really lean on that leg super hard. Thinking back to how Blink was at the time and the height of their success and strictly sticking to their style of music forever and then doing this record, it had to have been very fun and liberating for them to go. Yeah, like, let's just write an 80s song. It doesn't even matter. Let's just do it. We're one of the biggest like rock bands right now, but let's just like take this leap of faith. But I think in context with the rest of the the album, it's a hit for a reason because it stands out compared to like Stockholm Syndrome, for example. Right. Where it just, it does sound like a very polished poppy link single anthem, you know? It's almost like there's so much experimentation on this album. And on one hand, you have like the gloomy, dark experimentation. On the other hand, you have the fun poppy experimentation. This is on the fun poppy side. And they do, they do go kind of above and beyond. Yeah. And much like feeling this too, where feeling this is like overall, like a pretty positive song. And this is the other overall pretty positive song. Like the verses are generally about like the throes of love and the problems you occur when you're in love with someone. Mm -hmm. But like generally speaking, it's just like a love song. And so it's rather positive in nature. And it's like what you would more or less suspect from Blink, especially when they're writing a love song. Very similar to like the lyrical content of like going away to college, where it's just about being young and in love and in a relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, I like always a lot. Very rarely will I be like, Oh, I'm going to listen to always when I turn this album, but yeah. like I still thoroughly enjoy it anytime I hear it, you know? Yeah. And then the music video, I know that you mentioned you kind of love these overproduced music videos that almost play like movies. Yeah. This yeah. one, I think I read was one of the most complicated music videos for them to film because obviously they have very staged, very choreographed movements because they're all kind of doing the same thing. Yeah. There's the three yeah. different panels. Somebody's yep. the head, somebody's the body, somebody's the feet, and it continues to switch. Something yeah. about this music video stood out to me because it was just unlike anything else we had seen up to that point. Yeah, you could tell they had to really be careful in stitching it together and editing it. It honestly looks yeah. like a nightmare to film. It, <laughs> it looks like it probably took forever to do. Yep. But when it's pulled off so well, it just looks like yeah. seamless. That's tricky, man. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I can imagine, but yeah. It's well, st- I don't know either. I, I don't make music videos. <laughs> I just, sometimes I'm in them, but <laughs> I just from that experience, it looks like this took a real long time to do, as does any of their other music videos, you know? What's been the most fun music video for you to film? Which one was the oh, most enjoyable? I have, I have one answer. It's the one for Gone. It was amazing to do.
I don't know if you guys have seen that one, but we're basically at a mansion and we're mm-hmm. just having like fun. Was that an actual closed set or was that a real live? No, that was a real party. The party okay, that's what happened I whether our band existed or not, which is the cool. That's band. so cool. Like we had recorded Shapeshifter and we knew Gone was going to be the first single and we needed a video for it. And we had no ideas. We were getting like treatments from directors and stuff for like, yeah, I don't know. They're like, this isn't really like working. Let's try to figure something else in the meantime. And then this family, this woman had contacted our booking agent and was like, my husband is turning like 48 or 49 and we want to have knuckle puck play. We knew nothing more than that. And that's insane. Uh, booking agent worked it out and it was in like Northwest Indiana. So it was super close to us. Yeah. Um, so it was just easy to do. And we knew ahead of time that it was going to kind of be like a massive party. Yeah. But we didn't really know the extent of it. And then I think one day Nick was like, let's just have Miguel, our friend who did the video. He's like, let's just have Miguel come down and film us playing at this party and just like hanging out at the party. We're like, that's an amazing idea. Yeah. And we likened it to like the rock show video. It's mm-hmm. just them kind of like fucking around and having fun. And we're like, let's model it after that. It's just kind of like a documentary of, of our day. And. I remember we were pulling up. We were like, wait, is this going to be weird? Like an yeah. awkward party? Like they knew we were filming a video. We cleared it with them in advance. But we were like, this could render like an awkward video. We just didn't know. And we pulled up and it was just like simply astounding. Yeah. It was this big mansion and there were people playing with fire yeah. like professionally. And truthfully, one of the best days of my life. It was so much fun. The family was so nice. They were so like giving and just very thankful that we were even there. And we were like, you don't have to thank us. Like, this is cool. Yeah. <laughs> like, this is incredible. And it was just so much fun to be there. And you guys were crushing yeah. the moon bounce, right? Yeah. Yeah. You had like yeah. Ryan bouncing down on the slide and the yeah, moon that's bounce what with, it was. like with like he's like holding a modello. Yeah. So much that was like the whole day. The whole day was just like us fucking around and so awesome. sorry, can I swear? Awesome. I don't know. You can, yeah. Is. Yeah, okay. you can. It was just like the coolest thing, man. Nothing was like exaggerated. I remember that day we just kept going like, dude, check out this and that and this <laughs> and that. And we, it was just like so cool. And everything was just stacking on top of each other. <laughs> was that kind of crazy for you? Because don't take this the wrong way. I don't mean it in any disrespect. Or, oh, but, boy, here we go. No, no, no. I, I'm saying <laughs> like what you just described, you know, 50th birthday party or whatever in a mansion. That's not the knuckle puck demographic that I have in my mind when I <laughs> not at it, all like people yeah. at your show so was it kind of crazy to show up and be like all these different people like love our music that must have been kind of cool that was a cool factor to it so like the person who had reached out to her booking agent to book us was the guy's wife whose birthday was for so it was the husband's birthday and he's just like this guy who grew up on punk music like went to hardcore shows back in the 80s and stuff and also just ends up really liking us as well. I think he maybe saw us at Riot Fest or something mm, and mm-hmm. found out we were from Chicago and that's awesome. Uh, just ended up really liking our music. Sometimes we forget the punks have grown up over time, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's where yeah. we're headed, boys. That's we're on right. our yeah, way. No. <laughs> yeah. We will be <laughs> less rich. I just yeah, turned thirty that's for sure. <laughs> turning thirty. It's like, damn, we're still I, still talking about the same bands then. Yeah. Not much has <laughs> changed. Track number 12, Easy Target. The opening drum beat of this always made me think of like a marching band, maybe. 
Yeah. Like it's something you'd hear at like a high school football game or something. Yeah. It's like a call to arms. Yeah. Almost. Yeah. There's something kind of military about it. Yeah. 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 It definitely has like a, like a marching quality to it. I've never picked up on that before. I was listening to it today and I sort of heard like a lot of like clash influence in it. So did I. Yeah. Travis is drumming and the chords that Tom is using, like the da do 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 There's something like snaky about it and like creepy about it in the way that maybe some like older seventies punk songs were like the clash. And then I was looking in the liner notes and the clash was one of the bands that Travis thanked uh, in yeah. his thank you section. So I could definitely hear that as an influence now. And then there's a line, Mommy's Little Monster, which is a social distortion song, um, oh, which I didn't know, but you know, I was kind of reading through lyrics and reading some history of it, and that came up. And I was like, oh, that's so interesting that they would pull that from social distortion. So sure. You know, all kind of tied together, I would imagine. Yeah, that makes sense. Like Southern California punk rock synergy, like yeah. that kind of social distortions from Southern California, right? Am I'm pretty I sure. That up? I'm pretty okay. sure. That, I mean, if, if you're wrong, I'll just edit it out. So yeah, <laughs> right. just edit edit their Wikipedia. Yeah. <laughs> you said the word synergy, so it sounded really good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah thank you. I sound right. That's the important yeah. part. But uh, yeah, it just sounds kind of like an ode to like the punk music that they all grew up on, like yeah. bands from Southern California, like Social Distortion, Descendants, and stuff like that. Again, tying back to how they tie songs together and use theming across the album. The song is obviously like the precursor to all of this, Mm -hmm. you know, similar to how Stockholm Syndrome has its interlude prior and down into the fallen interlude. There's similar things between those songs back and forth. Correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think they've really have done that before this record being like, Let's take this one riff and put it in two songs and make those two songs connected and put them back to back, you know? It was so cool. Something you just don't really hear. And you didn't really hear, not just Blink, within pop punk, you just don't really get that 
level of thought behind a record yep. and the progression of a record. And I'm happy you mentioned like the theme and the sound that goes from track 12 to track 13. There's sort of this story behind the song with this girl, Holly. And right. all I kept thinking was this poor girl, Holly, that gets a bad rap and they kind of bash her in two of these songs. But I did read that it was, <laughs> it was a story that actually happened to Jerry Finn, who's the producer. And Oh, it was to Jerry, huh? Jerry, I yeah. Didn't, I didn't know that. I, again, was reading the liner notes today and I always knew it was about their friend. They just yeah. say Our, a friend told us. That's so interesting. That's yeah. crazy. Isn't that cool? Maybe they changed Holly's name just to keep it anonymous, but I did not know that was about Jerry Finn. That is super yeah. cool. Is that cool? It's a story about how basically he was humiliated as a grade schooler. He he had a crush on this girl. She invited him over and he got there and she and her friends basically just like sprayed him with a hose through water balloons yeah. and he left humiliated. And I thought that was so funny. And it did make me think like, this is totally putting you on the spot and it's fine if you don't have one. But <laughs> what was your most embarrassing story from middle school? Mm, nothing to that magnitude is really coming to mind. I wasn't getting hosed down by my crush. <laughs> you know, I have, a, yeah. I have a secondary question based off of Keenan's question. I thought it was pretty interesting because the story is Holly or who, whatever her name was sprays Jerry Finn with the hose and is like, okay, that sucks. But the fact that it evolves into Mark singing, let her slip my throat, give her ammo if she'll use it. And it's just complete <laughs> mm -hmm. going from like, wait, this is just some kid being a jerk spraying you with the hose. Like, just let her slip my throat. It's like, yeah, classic, yeah definitely like, pop punk over the top. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It took some like dramatic liberties there. Have you guys ever written a song where like it starts off with an idea or like an innocent sort of like, oh, let's write a song about this. And then it just kind of takes on a life of its own. The one that I think is coming to mind is maybe Everyone Lies to Me off Shapeshifter. Mm. Um, I was like, to again, today, like, yeah. Pretty much like our only like political song. Yeah. But it's uh, very aggressive. Like social, yeah. Like social yeah. commentary. But mm -hmm. that one, it needed no exaggerating or like souping up. But I definitely think we souped it up to match the style of the song especially like vocally and lyrically I think when Nick was writing lyrics for that song, it was like a social commentary song. But also, Nick is like a huge Rage Against the Machine fan. Mm -hmm. And so I think we were definitely pulling influence from there in terms of like its loud aggressiveness, you know? That's what I was actually going to ask you. So that one song of yours, it does sort of feel a little more hardcore. And I think mm -hmm. you've mentioned before that you do draw some influence from hardcore bands in the hardcore scene and especially from chicago mm -hmm. as we know like fallout boy grew up in the hardcore scene yeah rise against grew up in the yep. chicago hardcore scene is that a big part of who you are as a musician is that a big part of knuckle pucks influences it does come out from time to time but i'm curious like how much you actually draw from that definitely i think we used to quite a bit and still do from time to time like a lot of us grew up on hardcore music and going to hardcore shows and stuff and in a lot of ways i feel like it's easy for our band and pop punk fans to be like easily intertwined with hardcore bands. They kind of just like 
seamlessly go together sometimes. And that was definitely like an influence we were trying to elicit with the song, like ever in my scene as well. And it is yeah. interesting, like the brotherhood between like pop punk and hardcore. Fall Boy is a perfect example of that. Not even like a good geographic example, like a band being from Chicago. But I remember like listening to Take This to Your Grave when I was like in seventh grade mm-hmm. and having no conception of what hardcore music is. And then listening to hardcore music, like listening to like Gorilla Biscuits later on and being like, oh, Fall Out Boy had like gang vocals in their songs, you yeah. know, like a group shout. Mm-hmm. And I didn't realize that's what that was in seventh grade because I only listened to like pop punk and anything that was like strictly punk, not really right. too much hardcore music. And then you delve deeper and you know that Pete was in hardcore bands and so was like Joe and stuff. Yep. And, um, seeing like old flyers with like Fall Boy Rise Against the Killer, which is like an old Chicago hardcore band. And mm-hmm. they kind of like, exists in harmony together or something. Yeah. It's a little it's weird. so cohesive. You do see sort of this in and out between hardcore and pop punk. It's, it's just fascinating when you start diving deeper into it. Mm-hmm. Track number 13, the follow-up to Easy Target, all of this. Again, we mentioned how the last song bleeds into this one. They use the same riff, but slow it down. And then yep. crazy things about this song. Obviously, Robert Smith of The Cure sings on this one, yeah, which is wild. And personally, I honestly never knew it. I should have, but it actually took re-listening to it a few times for me to be like, oh, this sounds like a Cure song. It's so weird. And then, of course, it's because Robert Smith Duh. is singing on it. But it's yeah. cool that they can have that. You know, They can throw essentially a Cure song into this album, too. Why not? Yeah. I don't think traditionally this was one of my most favorite songs on the album growing up. It was definitely one I was like very, very attracted to. Like if you asked me, what's your favorite song off self-titled? I would probably say, oh, Asenio. I would be less prone to say all of this growing up. And now I'm more prone to saying that. So this is one of your top four, you think? Yeah, this is one of my four. I think I made that distinction today. So again, like listening to this song when I was like a kid and then not knowing who Robert Smith was. I only knew Mark and Tom's voices within this music. I knew it was a different voice. I maybe read it was Robert Smith. I don't know who that is. I don't know who the cure is. Like, you know, like my worldview was so slimmed down. Totally. And it was really cool getting into the cure later on, realizing that this is Robert Smith from the cure and realizing like the connective tissue there. And then listening to the cure and hearing how The Cure has influenced Blink over time. And I've been on like a huge Cure kick lately. Mm. And the reason why I like The Cure is because I love Blink. Mm -hmm. And because you can tell by listening to The Cure 
how much influence they've had on Blink-182. Even down to like the bass tone on a lot of Cure records. Sounds yeah. like Mark was like, I want that bass tone. That's what I want to try to do. Or even how they looked or dressed, like the I Miss You video. And Mark's hair live when they were torn off self-titled was kind of like, kind of like up and crazy and weird looking, kind of yeah. like a, he was trying to emulate that style, that Robert Smith style. Yep. Um, I don't know. It's just like really cool. Those two bands do not sound alike. And no, not at all. At all. Especially like traditional Blink. I think it's super cool that they were able to, first of all, get Robert Smith, who's like one of the most iconic figures in rock music in general, like yeah. in the history of rock music. And I could be wrong on this. I remember hearing they had secured Robert to sing on the song and they're all like massive Cure fans. And mm-hmm. so I think they were a little self-conscious, like, oh, does he like really want to do it? Does he really want to sing on like a Blink-22 song? He probably doesn't know who we are. And I think I remember hearing that Robert reiterated, no, I genuinely like the song. I'm very happy to be doing this. And they were just like psyched by that. I think of it like, if we had somehow secured Tom or Mark to see on like a KP song, yeah. we would be thinking the same thing. Like, do they really want to do it? There's no way. Like we would constantly be like putting ourselves down to, yeah. I don't know. It's kind of like hope for the best, but expect the worst. And so for sure, I think when I heard that story, I was able to just like think of it clearly in like our circumstance had we, you know, gotten someone like a big influence to see on one of our songs. But <laughs> Again, much like the Fallen Interlude, that was just Travis on the song. Sure, Tom's like in the choruses, but it's mostly Robert's voice the entire song. Yeah, like, it really is. All the verses and even half the choruses. They were probably like, oh, we have Robert Smith on the song. We're not getting in his way. Like, yeah. we, like, if he's going to do guest vocals on the song, he's doing like the song, you mm-hmm. know? Why would we not have him do that? I don't know. It just makes me happy to know that. That was definitely a dream of theirs. And even though there were millions of other dreams executed over time over Blink's career, they were still probably able to get to like one of the top like three ones, you know? Oh, yeah. And they just made it happen. It's just the coolest thing. The fact that they found out they have Robert Smith out of context, you would think, okay, well, are they going to force it? It just has such a natural place on this album, which I think says a lot about this album. Towards the end of it, it's so dark and gloomy that like, the dude from The Cure is like, <laughs> oh, of course he's on it. You jump in seamlessly, no problem. Yeah, right. Yeah. But yeah. I love this song. And I, you might have mentioned something along these lines, but like when I was younger, I was like, it's fine. But I didn't realize the significance of it, both from Blink's perspective and similar to the way your taste developed. I was kind of like tipped off to The Cure from this song. I'm like, I'm sure at certain points in my life, I listened to The Cure more than I listened to Blink. And it was like, from mm-hmm. this song that I had, that jumping off point. I don't know. I just love it. And it's something that I kind of forget happened sometimes. Yeah, totally. Me too. Kev, are you familiar with the Boxcar Racer album? Oh, yeah. Did you get into that? Okay, cool. This song reminds me a lot of the song Cat Like Thief from that album. Mm-hmm. Um, because yeah. it it kind of starts with this drum beat. There's a different guy singing who, to this day, I still don't know who's singing on that song. Tim Armstrong from Is it? Oh, is yep. it really? I never knew that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. that's so cool. Okay, that actually makes a lot more sense now. But it also kind of has like this slow, gloomy, sad feeling to it. And it kind of comes out of part in the album similarly, where it kind of breaks it up. And for whatever reason, whenever I hear this song, it's not like they actually sound that much alike, but it just kind of serves the same purpose within the album. Yep. 
Cat Like Thief, it's also like mostly Tim's voice on that song. Like, yeah, exactly. And much like Robert's voice, it is drastically different from Tom yep. Mark's voice. Way different. Not, it's not even comparable. And it's just cool that they would reach for something like that. I really respect that artistic integrity to go. Let's have uh, one of our friends or someone we'd really admire do guess what was on the song, but let's have their voice be like not even in comparison to any of our voices. That's yeah. that's really cool. Track number 14, Here's Your Letter. This one is like tied with Asenia with me. Whoa, that's big. Yeah. Really yeah. big. It's my favorite Mark song of all time, mm. but also one of my top two favorite Blink songs of all time. It's just like, again, what I know the band to be, and it's reaching those heights that I know they can reach and them executing it. I don't know what it is about the song, but it has always really stuck with me for yeah. the last like 15 years. It's just so cool. And the liner notes that Mark wrote were, this is like a song about not being able to convey how you feel and tripping up over your words and just like problems with talking to people. I'm sure he wrote it stemming from a real circumstance or a real problem he had, but just including the liner notes and giving you just enough what it's about to make mm-hmm. it applicable to most people. Yeah. yeah. Very effective. The theme of sort of miscommunication when he wrote it was, I think, an important theme. I think it's even more applicable today where in the days of social media and texting and all that, it's like, what an interesting theme where people aren't communicating well, messages are being lost in translation. It almost mm-hmm. means more now than it did 15 years ago when yeah. the album dropped. I thought that was cool. Yeah. Back again, I'm like, I never picked up that that was the theme, but how interesting today to listen to that. Yeah, definitely. Not just with Blink, but the best songs are the ones that like age so well over time that aren't dated that can still be applied to today. Track number 15, the conclusion of the album, I'm Lost Without You.
So they end the album in a very slow way. Mm -hmm. Mike, you and I, when we discussed the Yellow Card album, Ocean Avenue, it was very similar. They slowed the album down. There was a lot of acoustic at the end, a lot of piano. That's what Blink is doing here. They're slowing it down. Mm -hmm. Tons of piano, which we've only heard a little bit before, but this song is literally like a piano song, isn't it? Right. Kev might be able to correct me if I'm wrong. Is this Blink's longest song? It clocks um, in at over six minutes, and I can't think of oh, one. Oh, does that... it? Yeah. It definitely is, for sure. Unless if there's like a recent song I'm missing off like Neighborhoods or California or something, but no, I think it's their longest song. Like six minutes is long for them. Their typical song time is like what, like two to two and a half minutes or something, which yeah, is exactly. like average for a lot of fans, but. That's so interesting. Like listening to it today, I did not even realize that it was six minutes long. It doesn't feel like yeah. it's that long. It's like a continuous just, flow. Whoops. Did I just cut off for a second? Yeah, your video went out. Uh, <laughs> my girlfriend called me. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, geez. I feel bad. I don't want you to get in trouble. No, no, no. Not at all. No. I think I forgot to mention I was doing it tonight, but, uh, I'll call her after. We didn't get you in trouble? All right. No. She's cool, man. Okay, good. Mike, you were saying you were checking to see how long it was. It is six minutes and oh, yeah. 18 or so seconds. They kind of play the album out. This one just feels like an emotional love song, right? Kind of this big, passionate love song with a lot of piano behind it, obviously, which sort of adds to that sentiment. Mm -hmm. What did you think of how they closed it out, Kev? It sounds like a very appropriate closer. Very big and drastic and dramatic and... I really like when albums end with songs like this, where it's just saving the best for the last or like saving like the biggest for the last, like the most like anthemic for last. Out of all the songs on this album, anthemic is the word that I would tag along with I'm Lost Without You, which is something that KP tries to do on our albums. Like we always try to make the last song the biggest and like the hardest hidden and the one that you'll just like remember the most. A lasting impact. Yeah, it's like a big yeah, single. Exactly. You got to end it on a strong note. And I think that's what Blink did here, too. I think Travis said, uh, with the outro, I'm just going to keep playing until I can't play anymore. So it's yeah. not like they were really adhering to any structure at the end. They were like, just go for it, man. It'll sound like really big. You know? It's like the epitome of this album. Rules don't yeah. apply to us. Let's do something different. Yep. I can't help but think how liberating that must have felt. I need to do more research on why they wrote this album. So like once a year, I get into like a really serious like blink kick and I always come back to this album and I always end up thinking, why did they write this? They didn't have to write it. Do you know what I mean? They could have totally. just done like another anima or another take off a phantom jacket. I'm sure it would have been good and I'm sure it would have been commercially successful. Yeah. But they were such a successful mainstream rock band at the time. And the only 
why I came up with. The only reason I came up with was that at the end of the day, there's still just artists who want to express themselves and want to push the limits and explore new boundaries. And yeah, frankly, it can be conceived as like a commercially damaging album. Mm-hmm. And in a lot of ways, like it's not appealing really generally across the board. Like it is, yeah. they're all like wonderful songs, but when you pair it next to like all the small things, it is not even close to being the same band anymore. Yeah. Even on like the popular songs, like always in feeling this, there's just something very deliberately drastic and different about it. And I think that's why it's my favorite book record is because you could just tell that they were at the top of their game and just decided to pull a 180 and really go for it and try something new. It does feel like this album was their creative outlet. And yep. it felt like with Enema and Take Off Your Pants and Jacket, they were almost being put into this pop punk box. And yep. you can see that after those albums, the reason why they took this four-year hiatus and the reason why they started exploring side projects like Boxcar Racer was because they wanted to do something different. They wanted to be able to express their feelings in different ways and they wanted to just experiment more. Yep. I think you're exactly right. This was their outlet and it ended up being their, you know, their fifth album. Yeah. yeah. Can I also say that they really took a risk? I think this album is so fascinating and interesting to me because it was able to exist at this one point in time and I don't think they could have written it before or ever again because there's mm. just too much time has passed. Obviously they've had fights and falling outs and rekindlings and whatnot but that aside Mm -hmm. it's like they were putting everything on the table and willing to try anything and since then you have like mark and travis did plus 44 and they still are doing blink stuff and tom did angels and airwaves so it's like they have these other outlets that they didn't have when they were still blink and still expected to be this band together what they were able to produce was just something so different I think they kind of tried to do it again with Neighborhoods and it just didn't hit the same notes. Yeah. Years go by and they're like, let's do this Blink thing again. And like the songs on it, I don't necessarily dislike, but they just don't find the same footing, I guess. Totally agree with you. I had the same thought today when I listened to I'm Lost Without You and it was over. It really kind of felt like the funeral for those bands. Yes, I know they got back together and they've put out more albums with Tom, but it just didn't really hit the same way, which is not their fault, which sounds funny to say. I'm not blaming them, but it's all about context and time and place and where they were in 2002 when they were writing this album and recording it in 2003 was not where they were in their individual lives or their blink lives when they got back together in 20... 2011 was when Neighborhoods came out. So probably okay. two before they were actually writing and recording or whatever. So I don't think they're to blame for not being able to replicate what Self-Titled did. And I totally agree with you that they couldn't have written this before nor after. And the after part is a very important distinction. I have a lot of friends who say like, man... Listen to self-titled, listen to plus 44, listen to the first two angels records, listen to not now the B side off this album. Think about the album they would have made after self-titled. And I've always thought, I don't know. I don't think that would have happened, even if they never broke up and they 
committed to writing an album right after the self-titled album cycle. It could have just not worked. This one just had like magic. And I think a lot of it had to do with like the context of their band at that time. It's a snapshot in time. Yeah, exactly. Like you can't, it doesn't make sense for them to do it again. That's not to knock anything they've done post first hiatus or with Skiba. Again, I have a lot of friends and we all just like talk about Blink with Skiba and debate over that and stuff mm-hmm. like that and the authenticity of it. But at the end of the day, like they're just people trying to like eat a living playing in the band still. They have kids now who are like in college and need to pay college tuition. Like they're not going to just not be in Blink when you do, unless if you're Tom, but like, <laughs> yeah, you true. know, but because they're my favorite band, I can't really knock any decision they've made recently. It's a hard relationship because there's a lot of material they've put out recently where I'm just like, I just can't do that. Like, I'm just like objectively not into this, you know, yeah. in the same way. I don't know. It's a funny relationship, but I'm also not in my forties and still in a band that helped create a genre. I am not in that context. So I can't knock them for anything they're doing now. I think Keenan and I are both on record as. You just got to kind of appreciate it for what it is. Yeah. I do like California as a whole, and Keenan always tells me to listen to Nine. I still haven't gone around to it yet. And it's interesting. It's like Skiba is kind of taking over a huge role to fill. But Mm -hmm. in my mind, it's like, okay, if Queen can tour without Freddie Mercury, then I guess Blink can tour without Tom, right? Mm -hmm. If Sublime's still touring without Brad Knowles, I don't know. Let these guys do what they want. Like, you have these albums you love, and maybe they're not going to make another one that changes your life. But like you said, they're doing what they got to do. Yeah. I feel like a lot of people are emotional about it, about Blink and their trajectory with Skiba, especially, is because they are such a personal band to so many people, just like to the three of us. When they make an artistic choice that you would not have them do, it feels like a slight against you almost sometimes. Like, yeah that's an impossible standard to live to. Like they don't know who I am <laughs> to please like, everybody. They, yeah. They don't know how I feel about their band and that shouldn't matter. Like the love should matter, but like that shouldn't have to control what they choose to do. Right. You know? And like you said, you can't please anybody. That's just, that'd be absurd. I'm sure that's somewhat self-reflective for yourself. You know, you guys put out the best music you can that you guys know that you enjoy and that you think your fans would enjoy, but inevitably there's yeah. going to be somebody out there that doesn't like it and absolutely somebody can absolutely. look at 2020 and say oh well it's not copacetic it's not their earlier stuff which i really like you're doing what you know and love and i think that's what blink was probably doing here i think that's why i keep coming back to this record is because i do have this different perspective now that i didn't you know when i was 13 we do have a lot of kids say like man like you guys changed or it's not as good as it was on Copacetic. Or like always going to be haters. Yeah. And that stuff kind of knocks you around sometimes when you see it like time and time again. Yeah. But I would rather have someone say that stuff than someone say like, oh, you guys wrote the same record two times in a row. Right. Which I never really understood the critique of, why don't you guys sound like your old stuff anymore? And I'm like, I think we do. It's just like elevated a little bit. Yeah, they just don't want you to evolve at all in your musical choices and your creativity. They just want you to stagnate, basically. Yeah, and I'm not trying to compare ourselves to the Quantum, but I will 
do it on like a very weak leg. But much like when I hear kids say like, well, I wish you guys would go back to like the copacetic sound. It's like, that's not going to happen because it's not five years ago now. It's five yeah. years later. And we're in a lot of ways, very much the same people, but also entirely different people. Mm-hmm. Same thing with Blink-22. I don't know any of them personally, but I can imagine that they have grown exponentially since writing self-titled and recording self-titled. You guys, as the band gets scrutinized or dissected in terms of your sound and what's changed, but as listeners, you change and grow as well. So the years between each one of your albums, if people are like, oh, this is different. It was like, well, you're in a different place in your life, too. So you held to the mm-hmm. same standard. Yeah. 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 If Neighborhoods was released in 2003 and self-titled in 2011 we could be sitting here saying that neighborhoods is the life-changing album but that's absolutely not the case so great example it all comes down to time and place and context if Enema the state came out in 2020 i don't know like who knows like yeah who knows man maybe it would have not flopped but like maybe it just wouldn't have been as popular that lends itself in a huge part to any piece of music that comes out is like when is it coming out and why is it successful? It's because of the time and place it's in now. Blink needed us. They needed us to be popular. They owe us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we demand uh, yeah. some royalties. Also, I, I disagree with you, Kev. Mark definitely listens to Knuckle Puck. Yeah, they all do. You know it. I don't know about that. The first three or four albums we talked about, like, Mark had some role. I think he's just like this godfather of the pop punk community and he's I, just somewhere I, listening to 2020 just waiting for the perfect moment to reach out to you guys. i wanted to say that <laughs> we have like an ongoing joke kev that the first few albums it was like simple plan um mm-hmm. newfound glory mark hoppus has like some sort of connection he sang backing vocals on i do anything he played bass on a song. newfound glory song but he would jump yeah. in and he would do these things for these kind of up and coming or lesser known bands which was I thought was kind of fascinating. So, hey, you never know. If, if you were right. Mark to sing a verse on a KP song coming up, he might just do it. Only, if you want to break like, that news on the podcast, that'd be yeah, huge. That'd be big for us. <laughs> I mean, realistically speaking, we're only so many degrees away from specifically Mark Hoppus, for example. Neck Deep just toured Blink over the summer. And uh, our tour manager on the last tour we did, uh, his name's Pat Kennedy, he plays in that band Light Years. I don't know if you guys are keen, yeah. but great pop punk fan. Yeah. He was doing lights for Neck Deep on the Blink tour and he played guitar one day on, uh, I think it was like All the Small Things or something. Like they let Pat play a song and it's like Pat <laughs> played on stage with Blink 2 and was on the same tour as them, but also yeah. went on tour with us. And also like, I think when State Chance was recording with John Feldman, Mark was there for a day or two or something. Again, like we're only so many degrees away from him, but like, yeah, yeah. I just... less degrees than you to Keenan. Like, <laughs> yeah. you had your brother and your mutual friend. You only have one guy in between you and playing guitar with Link. <laughs> wow, that's a good point. Yeah, um, that's good perspective I, there, Mike. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I like to think he's or any of them are like somewhat aware. Have you had a moment yet with another band you're touring with where you, you can't fanboy out or anything? You gotta just be like. So, not for me personally. Would um, you be able to do that with Blink though? Would you be able to just like grab a cup of coffee next to Mark and not be like, so can I ask you a million (laughs) questions? I don't think so. Like their influence and impact on my life has been too seismic for me to play it cool. I love that you're downplaying 
whether or not Blink would have heard any of your music or knows of you guys, yet you were about to embark on a tour with Newfound Glory and Simple Plan. Like, <laughs> come on, dude. Oh, I guess you guys I are you guys cool. are big. We get it. I think that would have been my closest moment to being like, wow, this is like really cool. If I could yeah. tell like twelve year old Kev, you're gonna go on tour with Newfound Glory one day. That's really cool. When that tour that was happen. announced, I was like, obviously, I didn't know you at the time. I didn't know you guys, but just having listened to you guys and assuming that like newfound glory and some plan were big influences. Absolutely. I just remember yeah, thinking like, absolutely. these guys must be ecstatic about yeah. this tour. Like I was excited for you guys when I heard that that was the tour. I was like, wow, what a yeah. big moment for those guys. Probably. I know yeah. Keenan, um, Keenan tuned into your, um, record release stream show. Mm. I know Keenan said it was awesome, but like from your end of things, was it something you would consider doing it again or was absolutely. it like a novelty or? I would say yes, like right now, if someone asked me to, as long as it made sense. But it was weird. It just felt like a documented sound check that was longer. Because yeah. they say like, okay, we'll say action, three, two, one, action. And then like you wait 10 seconds and you just start playing. And there's nothing else there to tell you you're playing a show. Cause yeah, no crap. show. Reaction. Yeah, you're hearing other things. And so there's just like none of that. So that was a little weird at first to get accustomed to but like as the set went on you just started to feel normal the old habits just started to kick in but like we would say yes in a heartbeat because that's just like what it is now it's either that or don't play a show i remember joe making some jokes about like oh how's everybody feeling out there and like held off the mic or something like he made some sort of joke and i i remember just chuckling like yeah like what what else can i do (laughs) yeah there's so much like crowd interaction like especially between songs like how you guys feeling tonight you get some response boo (laughs) good like you know cheering whatever i like that you started with boo and then went to cheering (laughs) yeah exactly yeah (laughs) um it felt no different than soundcheck and yeah but that's better than not having it at all yeah totally we could go on and on i think we gotta we gotta let Kev go here because his girlfriend's calling him. He's in trouble now. So, uh, <laughs> I'm in the doghouse. Yeah. So it's 10:15 by you guys, huh? 10:15. Yeah. Oh, holy shit. Yeah, dude. Wow. Time flies. Taking, taking up your entire night. That was an absolute blast. I'm just so busy on a Wednesday night during the <laughs> yeah, pandemic. I'm out of work. Yeah. yeah. Let's not harp on anyone. Don't make Kev feel bad, dude. I know. <laughs> Kev, thanks so much for joining us. Mike and I obviously are still humongous fans of Knuckle Puck. The new record 2020, if we haven't said it enough times now to really inflate your ego, it's an incredible album that we'll be listening to nonstop. Thanks again. We really appreciate it. We know that you have some things coming up, some shows 
obviously anybody who's interested in your music can go check you out on Spotify, your website. Is there anywhere else the fans can find you guys? Any social media, Instagram, Twitter, check out our website, knucklepuckil.com. Listen to our music wherever you can find it. That's really it. Listen to 2020, please. It was a blast. I had so much fun. I hope you'll come back at some point in time. Yeah, man. I would love to. That'd be great. We're on Instagram and Twitter, Pop Punk Project, poppunkprojectgmail.com if you want to tell us uh, what we got wrong, and patreon.com slash project. As Keenan mentioned earlier, this is episode 15, and that's a wrap on our first quote-unquote season. Season one in the books, Mike. That's right. I don't think we could have ended it any better way than with Kev. It was awesome. So thank you again, Kev, for being here. This has been a dream come true. It's been an absolute blast. I'm so happy you guys joined us for it. And yeah, having Kev on was an incredible experience for us and something that we never would have imagined we'd be able to do. So I don't know if we say it enough, but like we really, really appreciate everybody that listens to this show. So yeah, always hit us up online, social media, anywhere. Like we're always checking that stuff out and we love to hear what you have to say or any thoughts you might have on the product. So again, we feel really awesome when somebody's like, hey, I like this episode. So thanks again. Yeah. We have a couple fun things, a couple interesting things developing, and um, we'll see you guys for season two. Thank you all again. We hope you had the time of your lives. Good riddance. Nailed it, dude.